0: Thank you.
1: Merci. Thank you. Kofiou we'll versus Her Majesty the Queen, Russell Silverstein and Ingrid Grant for the Appellant, Piandra Shrek and Lucy Saunders for the Intervenor Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Frank Adario, Gerald Chan and Nader R. Hassan for the intervener Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Jennifer M. Wolcom and Ivan S. Bloom, Q.C., for the respondent; James C. Martin and Richard Kramer for the intervenor, Attorney General of Canada; Sylvain mm-hmm. Leboeuf and Gilles Laporte for the Attorney General of Quebec. Uh, before we begin this case, I should advise uh, counsel in the second case that we do not expect to reach your case before 2 p.m. So we will begin then by inviting Mr. Silverstein to address us.
2: Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Ms. Grant and I will be making three basic arguments. First, by virtue of this Court's decision in Noble, the trial judge in the appellant's case was obliged to explicitly instruct the jury that they could not consider the Appellant's decision not to testify as evidence of his guilt. Nothing short of such an explicit instruction could suffice. Second, noble is correctly decided. And third, the Court below erred in concluding that the improper admission of a significant body of hearsay was harmless error. I will argue the first two points, the second with the help of the interveners the Criminal Lawyers Association and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Ms. Grant will argue the third point, and she will provide you with a firm understanding of the facts in this case. As far back as Jeremy Bentham, more than 150 years ago, it was recognized, as he put it, that between delinquency on the one hand and silence under inquiry on the other, there is a manifest connection, a connection too natural not to be constant and inseparable. Worldwide jurisprudence has recognized this. Wigmore, said that the layman's natural first suggestion would probably be that resort to the privilege to remain silent is a clear confession of crime. Here in Canada, in 1968, Justice Ritchie and McConnell recognized that at least some jurors must say to themselves where the accused does not testify, if he didn't do it, why didn't he say so? Justice Stewart in the United States Supreme Court remarked on this natural and instinctive interpretation of trial silence in 1977 in Lakeside in Oregon. In the vernacular, when people say that a particular witness has taken the fifth, everybody says to themselves, hmm. I must add here, that I will, and I will argue in greater detail later, that while this inference is a natural human reaction to silence in the face of accusation, it is in fact not a rational one in the context of a criminal trial. What this court explicitly said in Noble was that this very inference, which I shall call the adverse inference, constitutes an infringement of the charter rights of every accused who chooses not to testify. It should be noted that the idea that it was manifestly unfair for a trier of fact to consider the silence of the accused at trial as evidence of guilt can be found in this Court's judgments in 1994 in Francois and 1995 in Lepage. So the problem is simply put. When an accused doesn't testify, there is a significant risk if not a certainty, that the jury will treat his silence as a piece of inculpatory evidence, and unless something is done to prevent it, every such accused will be the subject of a serious charter infringement. The solution, justices, is as simple as the problem. Jurors must be told that the silence of the accused cannot be treated as evidence of guilt. The law is already full of examples of prescribed limiting jury instructions whose goal it is to prevent jurors from doing what comes naturally. When an accused testifies and is cross-examined on his criminal record, the jury is always told, and indeed must be told, that they cannot consider the criminal record as evidence of propensity, but only as evidence going to credibility. Where two accused stand tried together, the statement of one accused is not admissible as evidence against the other the jury must be told that, because if they are not, they will do something natural that is wrong. Bad character is a similar such example. And I will mention the case of Suzak, which is uh, a case right on point. The bad character of the accused can be relevant to one issue, but not another. No jury trial in such circumstances is imaginable without the limiting instructions that naturally go along with these examples. And although Justice LeMayer dissented in Noble, even he noted in his dissent at paragraph 38 that if Justice Sapinka is right in Noble, no, the no adverse inference instruction may well be required. Now, as you can see, I am advocating for the American position where, since the 1981 U.S. Supreme Court decision of Carter in Kentucky, The trial judge in the United States is required to warn the jury against drawing this impermissible adverse inference whenever the accused, who does not testify, requests it. Without resiling from that position, I say that the court here need not go that far to address the case at bar. In this case, the appellant was convicted of fraud by a trial with a judge and jury. He did not testify. He was not tried alone, however, and as is not uncommon, his co-accused, Peter Salty, did testify. And because it was very much in Salty's interest to convince the jury that the appellant was guilty, his counsel, Mr. Zinnis, in his jury address, strongly argued that the appellant's choice not to testify at the trial was one of the surest signs of the appellant's guilt. And I have put at tab three of the appellant's condensed book, a copy of his jury address, and if I can read from it quite briefly, at page 16 thereof, beginning at the bottom, line 31, lastly, Peter Salty took the stand and told his story, warts and all. Everest Prokkefew did not. Mr. Salty accused him of massive monetary fraud and backed up that accusation with the handwritten invoices and other documentation that he provided to the police. What was Mr. Prokofiev's response? Ask yourself why Everest Prokofiev did not testify. Did he have something to hide? Or did he simply have no response that could help him, since there is no point in trying to contradict the truth? The trial judge immediately appreciated the unfairness that would result if the jury wasn't warned not to draw this inference. But he refused to instruct them accordingly, based on what is agreed amongst all the parties, was an erroneous interpretation of Section 4.6 of the Canada Evidence Act. Speaking of Section 4.6, because every party, and intervener in this case, as well as the Court below, agree that the proper interpretation of Section 4.6 does not prevent the instruction I am proposing, unless the Court has any questions, I do not propose to say anything more about it. And, of course, there is no constitutional issue with the section if it is interpreted – interpreted, I'm sorry, as is unanimously proposed.
3: I just want to be clear about something. Yes, Is sir. it your position that the no adverse uh, inference instruction is mandatory on the trial judge or discretionary?
2: In my respectful submission, Justice LeBelle, um I uh, – sorry, Justice Monstein, um I am of the view that <laughs> – sorry. <laughs> I should – yeah, whoever you are. Um, in my respectful submission – this court, it is open to this court um, to go that far and join the American position. Um, I am advocating for it. Yes, it's a simple answer to a common problem. Um, uh, there's no reason not to give the instruction the, the to the... Attorney
3: General G- of Canada makes some arguments to explain why in different circumstances it may be adverse to the accused to draw attention to uh, to the fact that he doesn't... uh.
2: It should be up to the uh, accused who does not testify to waive the instruction if he likes, but if he asks for it, it should be given to him for the asking. Why? Because it's correct in law, it does no damage to any other process uh, or rule of law, and um, it's an important charter right that arises in cases such as this and should be dealt with. But as I say, this case is special. Why? because in this case, counsel for the co-accused made such an issue of it, it was so squarely in front of the jury, that even if this Court doesn't want to rule in a general fashion with respect to this um, um, instruction, as did the Court in the United States, in this case, the failure of the trial judge to explicitly warn the jury was an error. And as I say, um, Justices, In this case, nothing short of an explicit direction against the adverse inference could suffice. It wasn't just a theoretical possibility. It was expressly advocated by a party to the proceeding. Now, the Crown suggests that the presence of the co-accused, who has the right to have the appellant's silence considered by the jury on the issue of his guilt, makes the delivery of a limiting instruction for the silent accused somehow problematic. There are many examples in our jurisprudence where... I don't
1: want to detain you, but it is is a concern for me that uh, Noble, perhaps in uh, obiter, suggested that 4-6 does prevent any comment on this. And I think it's a hurdle that we'd appreciate, I would anyway, appreciate your assistance on.
2: Absolutely. Um, First of all, when Justice Sapinka said that in Noble... He did not mention any of the prior jurisprudence emanating from this court, and there are many such cases Avon, McConnell. Um, the, the cases are legion, and in the provincial appeal courts as well. Um, that said, and had been saying for years, that Section 4.6 did not prevent the trial judge from saying something beneficial to the accused. That Section 4.6 um, interpreted in a purposive way, only prevented the trial judge from commenting adversely or saying something that could draw this adverse inference uh, or, or create this adverse inference. Justice Sapinka's comment with respect to four six is certainly obiter vis-à-vis the ruling in um, vis-à-vis the ruling in Noble itself. And because it plays no part in the ratio of the case and is clearly at odds with prior decisions from this court, uh, I, I simply say with respect that he was wrong, didn't consider the matter carefully, and this court should not do an about-face with respect to that issue simply by virtue of what Justice Sapinka said. Well,
1: what you want us to do is overrule it, because there's a lot of authority <coughs> that even what the Supreme Court of Canada says in obiter is, is in some sense, uh, precedent to So I think you're asking us to overrule that comment in Noble, and that gets you into the whole issue of when it's appropriate for this Court to do that.
2: Indeed, and I would submit that Justice Doherty in the Court below handled this issue um, impeccably, and I would simply ask you to follow his reasoning in that regard. It fills a fair amount of the judgment, and what he essentially says is, there is obiter and there is obiter and certain types of obiter, the further they get from the ratio of the case, the more uh, that obiter can be safely ignored if it runs counter what, to. Uh,
4: what you are saying is that prior to this, uh, what you call an obiter, uh, the law was essentially well settled and a presiding judge could always tell his or her uh, uh, jury that there was a rule prohibiting inferences about the silence of the, of the accused.
2: That's exactly right, Justice O'Bell. That was the law in this country uh, for many years, and Justice Sapinka looked at Section 4.6, and in what is, I say with respect, a a bit of a throwaway line in the context of Noble itself, uh, he he ignored that jurisprudence. Had it been brought to his attention, uh, I'm sure he would have uh, thought twice about it.
5: But why would we make it mandatory? Why wouldn't we leave (coughs) it to the trial judge to evaluate, to assess the circumstances in which such an instruction is required.
2: Well, um, Justice Deschamps, I submit that it is always correct to give that instruction. There is no case where the accused does not testify where he is not entitled to that instruction. The adverse inference always arises in the minds of the jury, and it ought to be extinguished.
5: But the words are not sacred. We, the judge could use other language, such as, You can only um, base your verdict on the evidence that is before you. The accused always benefits from the presumption of of, uh, uh, innocence. So there is no magic to the word that failure to testify is not evidence.
2: That would only be so, uh, Justice Deschamps, if those other warnings that you just mentioned actually delivered to the lay juror the message that they cannot draw the adverse inference I'm referring to. In my respectful submission, <clears throat> telling the jury that the, that about the presumption of innocence, telling the jury that they may only consider the evidence in the case, doesn't go far enough to deliver to them the message that you must not think the way we know you're probably thinking. Um, uh, we know, lawyers and judges know, that the right to silence <clears throat> and the protection afforded by virtue of that right emanate from those basic rights, such as the presumption of innocence and the um, burden of proof on the prosecution. But lay jurors don't appreciate that. Um, To them, this adverse inference is the elephant in the room. And it's there, and then when somebody escorts the elephant out of the room, it's going to be there. And all those dancing around the issue doesn't, doesn't do the point. And I say again, what's the harm in telling the jury something that, according to Noble, is the law?
6: What about the situation where you have, uh, if it's going to be mandatory, one accused who testifies, as in this case, and one who doesn't?
2: I'm going to get to that. Okay. Um, The law in this country is full of such instances where evidence may be admissible against one accused or in favor of one accused and not for another. And the two cases that deal with that issue are the case of Crawford in this court and the case of Suzak in in the Ontario Court of Appeal. In Crawford, this Court dealt with the competing interests that arose where accused A sought to rely on the pretrial silence of B to undermine the credibility of B's testimony, which implicated A. A had a charter right um, to make full answer in defence, permitting him to launch that attack, but the testifying accused B required protection from the improper use of his pretrial silence. Crawford clearly calls for an explicit charge to the jury to ensure both competing rights are protected. And this court in Dagenay made it abundantly clear that charter rights are not subordinate to one another and the court and the, 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 the trial judge has to make sure that the, that the charter rights of all participants are protected. And if you look at tab four of the condensed book, you'll see that this Court said, with respect to the kind of case that you were just referring to, Justice Abella, that in a trial, this is at page 18, in a trial before a jury, the trial judge must explain the respective rights involved, how they are to approach the use of the evidence of silence and its limited purpose. And um, the Court refers to the dissenting judgment of Justice Weiler in the Court below and says that the Court should follow in these circumstances the following prescription and the first prescription is that the co-accused who has testified against the accused had the right to pretrial silence and not to have the exercise of that right used as evidence um, as to innocence or guilt and then further instructions are given as to how that can be used in favor of the co-accused the the other co-accused in SUSAC Justice Doherty had to deal with a situation where one accused at trial had sought to rely on the criminal propensity of his co-accused in support of his defense that the co-accused was the more likely perpetrator. And in Suzak, which is the next tab in the condensed book, Justice Doherty says quite succinctly at paragraph 127, in a case like this one where one accused leads evidence of the co accuseds propensity for violence in support of the position the co-accused committed the crime, a proper balance of the competing interests requires that the jury be told how it can use the evidence in considering the case of the accused and how it cannot use the evidence in considering the case of the co-accused. The case at bar, justices, is no different from these cases. In our case, the trial judge should have told the jury something that made it clear that while they could consider the appellant's choice not to testify as it may affect their determination of whether the case was made out against the co-accused, they were forbidden from considering it as evidence in the matter of the the appellant's trial. In the court below, Justice Doherty, applying this court's judgment in Noble, held that the trial judge had erred in his interpretation of 4.6 and could well have instructed the jury, as I propose. But he then said, if the appellant shows a real risk that his silence was misused, That's enough to characterize the non-direction as misdirection. And he went on to conclude that notwithstanding the failure of the trial judge to uh, give an explicit instruction, the rest of the jury charge was sufficiently uh, clear in that regard. And in my respectful submission, Justice Doherty erred. He took into account the jury address that was given by uh, counsel for the appellant. And in my respectful submission, all the appellant said was that the accused had the right not to testify. He didn't say anything about the consequences of choosing not to testify. Moreover, juries are told to take the law from the trial judge, not from the advocates uh, in the case. And in in the Ontario Court of Appeal, in MC, you have an example of the court sending a case back to trial where the trial judge had failed to instruct the jury on the presumption of innocence, but rather had referred to the uh, address of counsel as a substitute. And the Ontario Court of Appeal said that wasn't sufficient. Um, there's no reason why the jury in this case would have preferred uh, Mr. Um, Fedorovich's address to that of Mr. Uh, Solti's lawyer. Um, the rest of the boilerplate. Uh, if I may call it that, with respect to presumption of innocence, is simply not sufficient in my respectful submission. And I I think the best place to look for an example of how that is treated in the jurisprudence is in the way Justice Stewart dealt with it in the case of Carter in Kentucky, because these very arguments were raised there. And if you could turn to Tab 7, Justices, you will see the quote I'm referring to. Um, This is what Justice Stewart said on that issue. Beginning at page 303, Kentucky also argues that in the circumstances of this case, the jurors knew they could not make adverse inferences from the petitioner's election to remain silent because they were instructed to determine guilt from the evidence alone, and because failure to testify is not evidence. The Commonwealth's argument is unpersuasive. Jurors are not lawyers. They do not know the technical meaning of evidence. They can be expected to notice a defendant's failure to testify and without limiting instruction to speculate about the incriminating inferences from a defendant's silence. The other trial instructions and arguments of counsel that the petitioner's jurors heard at the trial of this case were no substitute for the explicit instruction that the petitioner's lawyer requested. Although the jury was instructed that the law presumes a defendant to be innocent, it may be doubted that this instruction contributed in a significant way to the juror's proper understanding of the petitioner's failure to testify. Without question, the Fifth Amendment privilege and the presumption of innocence are closely aligned, but these principles serve different functions. And he goes on to say later that the arguments of counsel are no substitute for directions from the judge. I now want to turn, Justices, to the second issue, which is that Noble was correctly decided in my submission. (coughs)
3: <coughs> Mr. Sullivan, yes. can I just return to that mandatory directory for a moment? Certainly. Or, or mandatory uh, Instruction. Uh, discretionary uh, for a moment. Uh, uh, one of the examples used by the Attorney General of Canada was uh, the self-represented defendant, and he refuses to waive his uh, – uh, refuses to waive, and so uh, the judge, according to you, is then – uh, mandated, and and it's just troubling me that the, the, the self-represented litigant doesn't really have the same appreciation of the uh, of the adverse inference and so forth, and uh, I'm not so sure that it's adequate to just say waiver the the decision is that of the defendant and they can waive. Uh,
2: well. Um, a- In a case where an unrepresented accused, and bear in mind that those instances are quite rare, where the unrepresented accused chooses not to testify, the judge says to the unrepresented accused, in the context of giving him the help that is mandated in cases of unrepresented accused, says, "Um, Mr. Accused, you didn't testify, that was your right. Do you want me to tell the jury or not that they ought not to consider your choice not to testify as evidence of guilt? I'll do it if you want me to. Uh, but if you don't want me to say anything about it, I won't. The unrepresented accused, assuming he's chosen to be unrepresented, um, uh, you know, has to take what's given to him. I mean, he, he's decided not to have a lawyer, so he's going to have choices to make along the route that would be best made with a lawyer. But if he doesn't have one, that's his choice. It doesn't detract from the requirement that he have a fair trial and that the jury not draw the adverse inference against him. Um, Understanding whether Noble was correctly decided begins with a, an understanding of what just this adverse inference is. The adverse inference is… This, yes this is
4: Noble, less the obitaires.
2: Uh, this, is, this is the principle okay. holding in Noble that there is a right not to have this used against you which the respondents are saying ought to be overturned by this court. Um, The consideration by the jury of the choice of the accused not to testify is independent evidence of guilt, that's the adverse inference. Nothing else is the adverse inference. And the question becomes then, is it constitutionally acceptable for a trier of fact who would acquit the accused upon consideration only of the case presented by the Crown to convict him after taking into account his failure to testify? When a jury sees the accused is not testifying and says to itself, we're not going to hear anything else, that's not the adverse inference. It is simply the jury deciding the evidence, deciding the case on the evidence. While the jurisprudence has suffered from a somewhat fuzzy understanding of the adverse inference, this court, since Francois and Lepage, has recognized the prohibition against the jury drawing that inference. As Justice McLaughlin put it in Francois, um, it is impermissible for the jury to shore up a Crown case which otherwise does not establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt with the silence of the accused. Or as Justice Major put it, it's not permissible for a jury which is not otherwise convinced that the Crown has proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to infer from the fact that the accused has not testified that he must be guilty. Does the adverse inference violate charter rights? I start by saying I don't think anybody can improve on Justice Sapinka's explanation of this point in Noble. But I only add this. It's undisputed. It is an undisputed charter right that no one can be convicted unless and until the Crown proves guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The accused is presumed to be innocent. The fact of being charged means nothing. If we allow an adverse inference from silence, the accused is no longer presumed innocent until the Crown proves guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Rather, he's presumed innocent until the Crown presents their case and is then inferred to be guilty if he exercises his right not to give evidence, even if the Crown has not proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. As Justice Sapinka explains so well in Noble, if it's constitutionally forbidden to draw an adverse inference in the case of pretrial silence, which this Court decided in Chambers, it must also be forbidden in the case of trial silence. The Crown suggests there is a qualitative difference between pretrial and trial silence. They cite the fact that the accused has no disclosure, hasn't had the significant assistance of counsel. But this argument boils down merely to an acknowledgement that because there are reasons other than guilt why an arrestee remains silent, the decision to do so is often not probative of guilt. That same reasoning should apply to trial silence because a closer look at trial silence reveals that quite apart from being morally wrong as a violation of rights in a civil society, drawing an inference of guilt from silence at trial is factually wrong. Because silence is not logically necessarily probative of guilt, the jury should not be able to draw inferences from it. Silence at trial might sometimes be probative of guilt, but it is most often not indicative of guilt at all, however natural and instinctive it may feel to draw that inference. And, what's more, there is no way for the jury to tell the difference. An accused who testifies faces cross-examination by crowns who spend every day in a courtroom, making their living speaking in public. Accused are often unsophisticated, poorly educated, mentally ill, mentally disabled, or children, or they may have a criminal record. And let us not forget the role that the advice of counsel plays in the decision not to testify. The criminal lawyer who advises his 16-year-old mentally ill client with a grade 8 education not to testify is not likely motivated by whether his client is guilty or innocent. In criminal trials, the decision to testify or not is not really the choice of the accused. Um, it, is with respect, it is with respect done with the addition of the advice of counsel who takes into account other factors far before and much, much before the question of guilt or innocence. In any event, the rule in Chambers is not based on an assessment of the rationale behind the possible adverse inference. Rather, it is a rights-driven rule that applies with equal force to trial silence. The respondent points to foreign jurisprudence and asks that this Court adopt the model of the UK and the Commonwealth. But Canada's constitutional structure is much more like that of the United States. Both have a set of written enshrined rights of which the right to silence, the presumption of innocence, and the right not to be compelled to be a witness are enumerated. If Canada needs guidance from any foreign country, it should be the United States. The Crown suggests this court look to the UK, but the law there not only permits an adverse inference from trial silence, it also allows an adverse inference from pretrial silence at the investigation stage. An arrestee in the UK is warned that while he may choose not to answer questions asked by the police, his failure to do so may be used as evidence of his guilt at trial. This court has diverged radically from this approach in chambers. Clearly the law in the UK can no longer inform our approach to the right to silence generally. Let me say something about the dissenting judgment in Noble, because the Crown suggests that that's what this Court should go back and follow. Um, Justice Lemaire, in the dissent in Noble, um, seems to agree or seems to say that the adverse inference should not be permitted in every case where, at the close of the Crown's case, there is sufficient evidence to go to the jury. Justice Lemaire and the Crown propose that the adverse inference should only be permitted in certain circumstances where the evidence gains further strength beyond merely meeting the the threshold level of what is called the case to meet, or where a directed verdict will be uh, defeated. With respect, I suggest that this threshold is quite unworkable. Where exactly along the continuum from a Crown's case that just gets by the directed verdict to a Crown's case that makes out an overwhelming case of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, does this threshold lie? Justice Maire does not address the issue of how in any particular case it ought to be determined that the threshold has been met. To make it a threshold question to be determined by the trial judge is procedurally absurd. First of all, in our system uh, of criminal law, the strength of the Crown's case is for the jury to decide, not the judge. Would the accused be entitled to a ruling at the end of the Crown's case before choosing to testify? Would he be able to call evidence and then ask for a new ruling in light of that evidence? Nor can the determination be a jury issue. Section 4.6 clearly forbids a judge from instructing the jury on this issue. Last of all, Justices, the circumstances of the jurisprudence in this country do not call for Noble to be overturned. The rule in Noble has not proven to be unworkable, nor can the respondent point to any cases where it has brought about an unjust result. Nothing significant in the jurisprudence since Noble calls the rightness of Noble into question. It is a recent precedent. To overrule it would be to diminish charter rights, and this Court in Henry cautioned against doing so lightly. Was this issue uh, raised in the courts uh, below? Well, no, of course, uh, um, Justice LaBelle, the the decision in Noble from the Supreme Court couldn't be challenged in the Court of Appeal. Um, The Court of Appeal went on the basis of the law such as it is and, and did the right thing. Only here can the question of the rightness of Noble be adjudicated. The commentary that existed, uh, that the commentary that the respondent points to with respect to the rightness or wrongness of Noble, uh, is largely began as a result of the American decision and was in existence at the time that this court decided Noble. They must have appreciated it, known about it, and decided as they did, notwithstanding. In conclusion, justices, the trial judge ought to have instructed the jury explicitly and forcefully against drawing the adverse inference in this case. Because that's what logically follows from Noble. And there's no reason to doubt the correctness of the law set down by this court in Noble only 14 years ago. Thank you. I'm turning the podium over to my colleague, Ingrid Grant. Yes, Justice. I'm sorry. At some point, are going to address, let's
7: assume the That you say should have been given, should have been given. Uh, Are you going to address at some point whether or not the proviso would still or could still
2: apply? Um, I didn't address it in my oral submissions. I address it in the fact in in my respectful submission um, a a serious error of law like this is immune from the application of the proviso.
7: Why? If the evidence is overwhelming, it's overwhelming, isn't it? Why why does it matter um, uh, what the error in law is if the verdict would inevitably have been the same because the evidence is overwhelming?
2: Well, um, of course, it begs the question to say the verdict would inevitably be the same. Um, it's one thing to talk about overwhelming evidence when stacked up against other evidence, which is what Ms. Grant is going to be talking about. But the concept of overwhelming evidence in a matter of the transgression against charter rights is another issue entirely, where where an accused's right to a fair trial is undermined by the absence of an instruction it's inappropriate for the for the court to apply section 686. I do indeed address it in my. Fashion. Right. And I'll try and find the case that deals with it, Justice, as quickly as I can. Um,
7: Sorry, I don't mean to take you off your. Yeah, train plan, I, I
2: if. There's a case emanating from this court that speaks to that issue. It may be, it may be Jolivet. I can't remember. Um, but this court has said just, uh, I think, what I've said, that um, where the fairness of the trial is brought into question by virtue of an error in the charge to the jury, uh, it's inappropriate for the court to... Um, to well, it's Lifkis. Pardon me. Yes, yeah. it's Lifkes. Well That's an, on a fundamental issue called yes. reasonable doubt. You're putting this as high as that, are you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. The right to silence and the protections emanating from the right to silence are, first of all, they derive from the presumption of innocence. They are, it is well, the child a lot, of those rights.
7: There's been a lot of trials that have gone before this one, then, that really are at risk of being overturned, because you and I both know, Mr. Silverstein, that this kind of direction that you're seeking on a uh, virtual mandatory basis, if the accused asks for it, hasn't been given for years and
2: years and years. I mean... I know. Um, Let let the chips fall where they may. If it's right, it's right. And this court ought not not to shy away from doing the right thing um, simply because it may have a significant ripple effect with respect to what's gone on in the past. Um, That's all I can say about it. And Lifkis is the case that speaks to the impermissibility of 686 in in, in such a circumstance. Thank you.
8: Uh, Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I'm not here addressing the reason that most of these people are here, Um, but I am addressing what is a major reason why the appellant is here. There was a decision made by the trial judge in this case that both parties to this appeal agree was an error of law. That is the admission of certain hearsay evidence, which I will explain. Um, The Crown at the Court of Appeal and They have not resolved from this position conceded that it was an error to admit this evidence. The only remaining issue is whether the Section 686 proviso applies and um, whether the remainder of the case was overwhelming. Now, unfortunately, I have to begin with uh, summarizing the evidence at the trial and where the various players fit in to demonstrate how important this evidence was in the context of the case and the prejudice caused by this evidence. It was alleged by the Crown that the Appellant and the co-accused Salty conspired with each other and others in a scheme to defraud the Government of Canada. There is no doubt that such a scheme was in fact in place. Rather, the issue at the trial was what was the nature of the Appellant's involvement in these transactions and whether he was aware that the transactions were fraudulent. The scheme involved going through the motions, creating paperwork, to show buying and selling of pieces of heavy equipment that did not really exist. And this was done in a way that generated tax credits from the government. Now I've created a diagram, and this is a tab 10 of the condensed book, that I hope will help me briefly explain. It
4: was at least a pretty clever scheme. Pardon? It was at least a pretty clever scheme.
8: It, yes. um, the
4: there were some suggestions that your client was perhaps the mastermind behind
8: it. Oh, there were absolutely some suggestions of that. And I will, be getting, I will be getting to who suggested them and just why his evidence was completely incredible um, in a moment. But uh, see at the, at the center of this diagram is a company called Southwestern. Southwestern run by um, a person named Harrapin and a person named Hishon. Southwestern was purportedly operating in Nova Scotia. At that time, Nova Scotia had a harmonized sales tax. Ontario didn't. They would sell this heavy equipment that didn't really exist um, to the company on the right, Dollar Leasing, Courtesy Saab, Wood Ford, one of these companies. I'm going to call them the Dollar Group of companies, just shorthand. They would char- Southwestern would charge HST to Dollar. Dollar would sell to Drew Leasing or to Glen Abbey Forest Products, also in Ontario. They would charge GST only. Drew Leasing or Glen Abbey would sell to a company called Dixon Sales. Now, Dixon Sales was just Southwestern. They had the same account. It was run by the same people. It was the same company. And they would mark up each step along the way. The price would be marked up slightly. People would take a little bit of profit. And because Dollar and the other companies in in that part, had paid HST but only collected GST, they would get a tax credit from the government. That infusion of cash, along with the fact that Southwestern, rather than remitting the HST to the government, just pocketed it, um, would uh, make the scheme profitable. Now there are a couple of significant points about this evidence that I need to stress. One was the role of innocent parties in this scheme. Now in this diagram, the what I'm gonna call the guilty parties are colored in red. Now there's some other ones that aren't colored. We've got the dollar group of companies and we've got Glen Abbey Forest products. The red parties, the guilty parties, Tullock, Harrip, and Hishin, pleaded guilty and testified. We have at the top discount sales. And I'm going to come back to discount sales in a moment, because that's where that's where the, the disputed evidence really um, really is relevant. But everyone else, Dollar Courtesy, Erinwood, Glen Abbey These are innocent parties recruited to take part in the scheme. They did not know. It was not alleged that they knew the transactions were fraudulent.
4: Uh, Omira was was dead at the time of the trial. Am I right?
8: John Omira, Yes. Yes, yes. He was dead at the time of the trial. Never Never gave evidence. Never gave evidence at a preliminary inquiry. So why were these innocent parties involved in the scheme? Well, the answer is that this was a government tax credit. It took a long time to process. It took a long time to get to the company. And a company with a small cash flow would run into problems, waiting for the money from the government. So a practice developed in the wholesaling business, not just in this scheme, but in the actual legitimate wholesaling business, to involve a larger company in a transaction, cut them in for a part of the profit, and they would hold the tax. They would wait for the, in, for the tax credit from the government. It was essentially they were buying a debt. So the reason that, that the fact that this existed in the actual industry meant that this practice did not raise any flags in the, in the context of the scheme. Now, the other important point to stress is the role of the broker in the wholesaling business. Now, the players in this scheme, innocent and conspirator alike, were primarily in the car wholesaling business, and heavy equipment was sort of an offshoot of that. Now, in the, this wholesaling business, There's a lot of buying and selling between wholesalers. We're not talking about people who sell to the public. They trade cars, vehicles like commodities with each other. And a broker is someone who puts the two sides of the deal together, and for that they charge a commission or get a percentage of the profit. They don't own the vehicle. They probably have never seen the vehicle. But they learn of a person who wants to sell. They find a person who wants to buy. They facilitate the deal. They get a piece of the action. So where did the appellant and Salty fit into this? Well. It was Solti who approached the innocent companies, the Dollar Group, with the proposal. He was acting as a broker vis-à-vis them. They dealt with him. Solti, of course, testified that he did, was not aware of the fraudulent nature of the scheme. He also testified that he was recruited to take part in it by the appellant Prokofiev, in the appellant's capacity as a broker to find companies to finance the deals. Solti testified that the appellant sent him instructions for the transactions that Salty then passed along to these companies. And the appellant would invoice Salty for a portion of Salty's commission, getting his piece of the profit. The issue at trial was whether the appellant was a knowing conspirator or was he also one of the duped parties who did not know that this scheme was fraudulent. Much turned on the evidence and the credibility of Tulloch and Salty, which I will address in a moment, but first, just very briefly, the role of discount sales. Discount sales did not have a direct role in the fraud, but they did receive very large payments from Southwestern. They were clearly implicated in the fraud, receiving those payments. The registered owner was John O'Meara. He died before trial. He never gave any statement that was led in evidence. He was, at the time, the appellant's father-in-law, but he was also, the evidence showed, acquainted with Andrew Tulloch, the other Um, the admitted co-conspirator. The theory of the Crown, with regards to discount sales, was that the the appellant was running discount sales, that he was using it to funnel money for the fraud, and indeed Tulloch testified to this. Now, in support of this theory, the Crown relied on hearsay evidence that the trial judge allowed. And this hearsay evidence consisted of notations, in the Discount Sales Checkbook, and an example of these notations can be found at at, uh, Tab 11 of the Condensed Book. The checks from Discount Sales Checkbook were made out to cash, but there were these notations left on the check stub that would remain in the book after the check is torn out. There would be an E or a J or both and a number. The theory of the Crown is that this was a record of the division of the proceeds with E being the appellant and J being John O'Meara. Now, it's certainly debatable whether these notations were capable of this interpretation, but in any event, the Crown conceded at the Court of Appeal that this evidence should not have been admitted, conceded that it did not satisfy the principled approach, and that position hasn't changed. What was argued at the Court of Appeal and accepted by the Court of Appeal was that the 686 proviso applied. The Court of Appeal found that without this evidence, the jury would inevitably have convicted. In other words, that the balance of the case was overwhelming. We submit that this finding was wrong in law, that this evidence was a major part of the Crown's case, and that the rest of the evidence is the farthest thing from overwhelming. Again, it was conceded that the appellant had some involvement in these transactions. The issue at trial was whether he was a knowing conspirator or if he was involved, like many other participants, without guilty knowledge, putting parties together as a broker. The case against the appellant came down to the evidence of Tullock and Salty. The other conspirators, Harrapin and Hishon, denied any knowledge of any involvement by the appellant, and the innocent companies never dealt with the appellant either. Tullock, as was referred to earlier, laid the scheme entirely at the appellant's feet. He said the appellant was the mastermind, that he had set it up, that he had recruited Tullock to take part, If
4: they're believed and uncontradicted, where do you stand?
8: Well, if they're believed, then the case may well have been made out. But the issue isn't to, I guess, determine whether they were believed. The issue is would they necessarily have been believed? Would a jury inevitably have accepted this evidence, regardless of the error?
7: Isn't moment, if I may, talk about confirmatory evidence. Isn't this one example where if you want to lay off the discount on the father, um, it, that's pretty speculative, isn't it? Who, who best to be able to say whether he was getting the 400000 from discount or not than your client? I mean, it seems to me that that gets us into the realm of you asking the jury to draw an inference that there's no evidence of, there's only one person, really, that could give that evidence. You're into speculation, it seems to me.
8: Well, Justice Mulder, my submission, it is not speculation that John O'Meara was involved in running discount sales, either alone or with the assistance of Andrew Tulloch. There was significant circumstantial evidence that actually pointed to John O'Meara as the person running discount sales. Except his wife's evidence. Yes.
6: That his affairs were all organized before he died. And that he wasn't carrying on any business at the address that was, that had him listed as a director?
8: Yes. His wife testified, his widow testified that, well, she didn't know about discount sales. She didn't think he was running any kind of business. But what is ignored in the judgment of Justice Doherty in the court below was the evidence that just that John O'Meara and his wife were estranged and living apart during the relevant time period, she would not necessarily have been aware of all of his dealings. And in fact, she had never heard of the company discount sales, but clearly John O'Meara was involved in discount sales. All of the documents for discount sales were found among John O'Meara's possessions, both in Ontario and at his vacation property in New York State. Now, the fact that the address was the appellant's address has been, much has been made of this, that his, the appellant's address was on the, on the documents, Well. It was listed as the home address of the director of the company, the director being John O'Meara. It was not listed as the business address, and John O'Meara was living there at the time. He was, he had moved in with his daughter when he moved out of his wife's home when they were estranged. In my submission, this reasoning that, well, because they were related and living together, that this points to guilt of the appellant is simply a guilt by association. It's a guilt by father-in-law. Now, The, the Crown notes that, well, when John O'Meara died, he didn't have all this money. Well, it should be noted that no one ever came to court and testified as to the contents of the appellant's accounts. No one went and looked at those, and there's no evidence whatsoever that the appellant had all this money at the given time. So the fact that John O'Meara didn't have it is, in my submission, neither here nor there. Now, The Court of Appeals judgment also, in looking at this circumstantial evidence of connection between the appellant and discount sales, ignores the connection between John O'Meara and Andrew Tulloch. Andrew Tulloch was involved in recommending a lawyer and a bank contact for John O'Meara to set up discount sales. There was evidence of Andrew Tulloch using the accounts or the accounts of discount sales being used for Andrew Tulloch to buy a motorcycle and a boat, which suggests in my submission not the appellant's involvement, but Andrew Tullock's involvement in discount sales. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there was a discount sales account in New York State in the very town that John O'Meara had his vacation property and mail was coming. In my submission, the circumstantial evidence is not, it's not speculative that John O'Meara was involved in this. The circumstantial evidence, absent the inadmissible hearsay, actually points to John O'Meara and potentially to involvement by Andrew Tollick. It is not necessarily, it is not an overwhelming case of involvement by the appellant in discount sales. Are
6: you going to be dealing with the 16 invoices that um, Salty said he got with directions from the appellant and handwriting, the appellant's handwriting, which he acknowledged was his?
8: Yes. I'll deal with that right now. Um, there were 16 invoices that, um, that Mr. Solti produced to the police that had instructions written in the appellant's handwriting. As I had indicated before, it was conceded that the appellant had some involvement as a broker in these transactions. But what is very different in the uh, — the back up for a second — the evidence that is.
6: Invo- if you yeah. could just tell us what these invoices were, maybe, so that the, we know what we're listening for.
8: Yeah, the invoices were um, invoices, bills, um, from the appellant to Salty for Salty's share, uh, sorry, for, for the appellant's share of Salty's commission. Because what Mr. Salty testified is that he was getting 1% commission for these deals, and that the appellant who brought him into the deal was getting one quarter of that. So it was an invoice billing him for that. And it had instructions for who was selling to who, and uh, it certainly showed that the appellant knew what was going on and in, in that who was selling to who in that regard. But what these invoices show was involvement. If I can turn back to my diagram, show involvement in the transactions between the innocent companies buying and selling from dollar courtesy, this set of companies. Those invoices themselves are a paper trail. They were invoices from the appellant's actual registered company called Naris. They were not made in cash. And they were, as I said, on the side of the scheme that involved the innocent companies and the potential for innocent involvement as a broker. In my submission, those invoices, while they are certainly indicative of involvement in these transactions, but we know that people can be innocently involved in these transactions, those invoices in creating a paper trail were indicative not of guilty knowledge, but of innocent involvement. And this must be contrasted with the evidence about discount sales, with the impugned hearsay evidence, in that that hearsay evidence points to large cash payments, if the notations mean what the Crown says they mean, point to large cash payments not no paper trail, no invoices, cash payments from discount sales, which we know is from the circumstantial evidence is a guilty party in this fraud. So the salty evidence, the invoices, point to a very different kind of involvement than the discount sales evidence, than the evidence that it is conceded by everyone should never have been admitted in the first place. I've already, I guess, gone through my submissions on just generally speaking why this evidence was so important to this trial, that it showed a very, if it, again, if it means what the Crown says it meant, it showed a very guilty type of involvement, the receiving of cash, clearly profits from the fraud, very incriminating evidence in and of itself.
7: I just but, need to interrupt, but it just seems to me you're taking each little piece of evidence and hiving it off and saying there might be some innocent explanation. But I don't think that's the way juries work, and I don't think that's the way trial judges work. And, and with respect, as one of my colleagues pointed out, you have the direct evidence of Mr. Salty and Mr. Tullock. What we're talking about now is what I might call confirmatory evidence, because these people had their warts. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, I still keep coming back to you're asking us to parse each little piece and say this could mean something else, this could mean something else. But you've got to look at the whole picture. And and it seems to me with respect that that's what we're missing here.
8: I agree that we do need to look at the entire picture. And the entire picture included the direct evidence of Tullock. And if I can pause for a second and deal with his evidence, Mr. Tulloch was a Vetrovec witness. The jury was warned that they should not, that it would be dangerous to accept his evidence unless it was um, corroborated, and that this very impugned evidence, the evidence that has been conceded to be admitted in error, was the evidence pointed to by the trial judge as potentially confirming Tollick's evidence, one of the the elements that could Could confirm it. Could
7: properly look to here?
8: Only insofar as the um, Vetrovec witnesses or witnesses of unsavory character confirmed each other to an extent. Um, otherwise, the only, in my submission, the only real confirmatory evidence of Tullock's testimony with regards to discount sales was this hearsay evidence. All right. Thank you. Now, again, in my submission, the status of Mr. Tullock as a Vetrovec witness is incredibly important to this issue in that this evidence could have served to corroborate his evidence. And as I've gone through earlier, all the other pieces of circumstantial evidence, because, again, we have to look at the case as a whole, but the other pieces of circumstantial evidence in my submission don't corroborate Tulloch. They point away from the appellant, contradicting Tulloch's evidence that it was the appellant who was involved. But Tulloch, as a Vetrovec witness... The jury was instructed, look for confirmatory evidence, and maybe you'd want to look at this hearsay evidence. In my submission, the erroneously admitted evidence served to corroborate a Vetrovec witness on a critical point in the case that, and this is always a very serious error. The evidence of Andrew Tulloch provided and this is in the words of Hibbert from this Court, a direct route to guilt. That is, Tulloch provided evidence that said directly the appellant knew, the appellant was the mastermind, the appellant was involved, and he knew. And that was a direct route to guilt for the jury to follow. And in my submission, the proviso cannot apply in this situation. And it cannot be said that the jury would inevitably have accepted Mr. Tulloch's evidence Without the corroboration of this hearsay evidence, in light of the fact that the case, viewed as a whole, the circumstantial evidence does not point to the appellant. Of course, there was the evidence of Mr. Salty as well. I can address that. Um, Mr. Salty was co-accused. He wasn't a Vetrevec witness per se. He, however, hated the appellant. I'm not going to mince words on this. He hated him. The appellant had had an affair with Salty's wife, culminating in the appellant moving in with Salty's wife in Salty's house with Salty's children. And ultimately, uh, Salty, there was an incident where Salty tried to run the appellant down with his car. So there is certainly some, I'm going to say, credibility problems with Salty's implicating the appellant. And to the extent that Tulloch and Salty are the only witnesses who are providing this direct evidence against the appellant, this was not an overwhelming case. There was nothing overwhelming in my submission about the evidence of two unsavory witnesses and some weak circumstantial evidence that actually tended, in my submission, to implicate someone else. The evidence was far from overwhelming. Conviction was never a foregone conclusion in this case. The credibility of these witnesses was always a live issue, was the live issue in the case. In my submission, a new trial should have been ordered by the Court of Appeal. They did not, they did not reach the correct conclusion with respect to this. This was not an overwhelming case. And we urge this Court to order a new trial now on this issue, unless there are any questions. Those are my submissions. Thank you.
9: thank you chief justice uh, justices Um, I will adopt the submissions of the appellant and the CCLA on the charter implications of overruling Noble and the implications that may have on the burden of proof Uh, my submissions will be restricted to more practical implications I have two points to make Uh, first The argument in favor of an adverse inference is based on, in my submission, an unrealistic view of how the decision whether or not to testify is made in the course of a criminal trial. And second, the inference, which asks a trier of fact to try to discern what a witness who has not testified would have said if he had testified, will be necessarily speculative. And it follows that the inference in my submission will almost always be unsafe, and will carry with it the risk of wrongful convictions. Beginning with the first point, it's often said that the two most important decisions that a criminal defendant has to make in the course of a criminal trial are how to plead and whether to testify. It is our position that the adverse inference the Crown seeks to have drawn in cases where a defendant elects not to testify is based on an overly simplistic and inaccurate understanding of how this critical decision is usually made. As a result, the inference is not a safe one. Given that the inference, if drawn, will be a powerful one that will almost always lead to a finding of guilt, the danger of allowing such unsafe inferences will inevitably lead to the one thing our justice system strives to avoid at all costs, wrongful convictions. For a trier of fact to be able to draw an inference, two preconditions must be met. First, the trier of fact must be aware of all relevant information from which the inference can be drawn. And second, the trier of fact must be able to consider competing inferences in order to determine whether there is a basis for choosing between them, a rational basis. With respect to the adverse inference, as we've been calling it, neither precondition is met. The relevant information a trier of fact would need to be able to safely draw inferences from a decision not to testify is whether, as is usually the case, the decision was made on the advice of counsel and what that advice was and what was the basis for it. The decision whether or not to testify, realistically speaking, is almost always made, at least by rational defendants, after consulting with counsel, whose job it is to advise clients on issues precisely such as these. Jurors may not appreciate this and it is simply unfair to ask them to draw inferences without giving them the information that they need to be able to do so in a rational and safe manner. And it's equally unfair to ask jurors to draw inferences without making sure that they are aware of the competing inferences. That the accused chose not to testify because he is guilty may be one inference, though not in my submission a particularly compelling one, as it is premised on the notion that guilty accused are usually honest and unwilling to take the stand to lie. Guilty accused testify in lie, and innocent accused remain silent. Ultimately, a rational accused, a rational defendant, will base his or her decision on whether or not to testify on his or her belief as to how that testimony will affect the outcome of the case, and that belief will be informed by the advice of counsel. An innocent accused may and often does choose not to testify, Because their lawyer has advised against it, and there are a myriad of reasons why counsel would give such advice. The crown implicitly supposes the exchange between client and counsel goes like this: Should I testify? Well, that depends. Did you do it? Yeah, I did. Okay, then don't testify. It's not the way it works with the greatest of respect. There are many factors experienced and competent counsel will consider in deciding uh, how to advise a client uh, whether or not to testify. The Lawyer may have advised the client against it because she believes that the client is inarticulate, would make a bad witness, would become confused when cross-examined by a Crown Counsel, and would generally do little to advance the case for the defense and may confuse issues. It may be that the accused has a record and Counsel believes that the risk of the prejudicial effect of exposing that record would outweigh any perceived benefit of calling the client to testify. The existence of a record and the concern that it will be exposed is a perfectly legitimate basis um, to consider whether or not to testify, and this Court recognized that in Underwood, and that is why a Corbett application this Court has held should be brought at the close of the Crown's case before the defense elects whether to call evidence. Unless we make jurors aware of these competing inferences, how can we be able to ask them to draw appropriate inferences? And the analogy to the fact situation suggested by Justice Scalia in his dissent in Mitchell and United States of confronting his son about having seen a movie he was forbidden to see is with respect simply inapt. Justice Scalia's son did not have the opportunity to consult a trained and experienced professional prior to deciding whether and how to respond to his father's allegations. Nor was Justice Scalia's son liable to be cross-examined on previous forbidden movie viewings if he chose to make such a response. And most importantly, Justice Scalia's son in this hypothetical situation was not liable to the type of consequences which uh, a criminal defendant is liable to upon conviction. The two situations are simply not the same. But it's exactly this type of analogy that is the basis for the adverse inference, that the Crown is advocating, and the differences between this type of fact situation and a criminal trial demonstrate exactly why the inference is a dangerous one. As was seen in Professor Bloom's study um, at Cornell University involving DNA-exonerated accused that's cited in our factum, a significant number of innocent accused choose not to testify. And as Professor Bloom pointed out, there are several reasons why an innocent accused may choose not to testify. Some may be mentally challenged. Some may, be, may have wrongly assessed the strength of the prosecution case. Um, <clears throat> some, indeed many, have prior records which they don't want exposed. And some are simply embarrassed. And in each of these cases, however, the adverse inference, if it was drawn by the juries or judges in those cases, it was wrong because we now know all these particular defendants to have been innocent. The respondents suggest that the adverse inference will only become available once the Crown's case meets a certain threshold, the parameters of which are not entirely clear, nor is it clear who determines when the threshold has been met. The trial judge can't instruct a jury on the issue because of Section 4.6. The adverse inference is completely unlike any other type of inference triers of fact are asked to make. Usually, triers of fact draw inferences based on information they have received about past events. For example, can possession be inferred from the location an item was found within the accused's home? Can intention be inferred uh, from the manner in which an accused did or didn't do something? But in this instance, triers of fact are being asked to draw an inference not from past events, but from the manner in which the trial is being conducted. But unless the parties are able to explain why they took a particular course of action and not another course of action, those inferences will necessarily be speculative. In Jolivet, uh which is in our authorities at tab five, I'm not gonna ask you to turn it up, Justice Binney, writing for unanimous court, adopted um, the following from the Ontario Court of Appeals Reasons in Zaire, and did so in the context of the defense asking the trial judge to instruct the jury that they could draw an adverse inference from the Crown's failure to call a particular witness. And the passage uh, cited with approval by Justice Binney went as follows, there are many reasons why counsel may choose not to call a witness and our courts will rarely question the decision of counsel, for the system proceeds on the basis that counsel conducts the case. Often a witness is not called, and if the reason was known, it would not justify an instruction that an adverse inference might be drawn from the witness not being called. Of importance under our system, counsel is not called upon or even permitted to explain his conduct of a case to the jury. The adverse inference from the failure of a witness to testify, whether a Crown witness or a defense witness, in effect amounts to an invitation to the jury to speculate as to what the witness who did not testify, would have said, had he testified. And like any speculation, it is a dangerous basis upon which to base a verdict in a criminal trial. The respondent has not suggested that the principles in Zaire and Jolivet uh, ought to be overruled, but in my submission, uh, there is no principled reason why that would not follow were this court to overrule Noble. Surely, what is sauce for the silent accused goose is sauced for the Crown witness, Gander, as well. As was pointed out in Zaire and adopted in Jollivet, there may be many reasons why Council chooses not to call evidence. Counsel cannot explain those reasons to the jury. But absent such an explanation, the jury is being asked to draw inferences in a factual vacuum and without an adequate foundation. There is a word for that type of reasoning. It is called speculation. It has no basis and no place in our system of justice. Unless there are any questions, those are my respects. Thank you, Mr.
1: Schreck. Mr. Ardario?
10: Morning. Uh, I'm going to make two points. Um, uh, What's on the table today is a uh, significant uh, overhaul of criminal procedure. And uh, I say that for two reasons. Uh, first, uh, overturning noble, as I point out in the factum, means overturning the standard jury charge in WD. And second, overturning noble means an accused is penalized for exercising his or her right to silence. I'll deal with the first. First, um, uh, the WD point, which is set out at paragraphs 7 to 9 of, of my factum. Now, um, at the risk of trespassing on your patients, i just point out that in W.D., uh, Justice Corey um, set out the three-part analysis for evaluating the defendant's evidence. Um, if you believe the evidence of the accused, you have to acquit. If you don't believe it but you're left in a reasonable doubt, you have to acquit. And then the third branch, even if you're not left in a reasonable doubt by the evidence of the accused, you have to ask yourself on the basis of the evidence you do accept whether you're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, if the defendant's disbelief testimony cannot hurt his case step two it would be illogical if his silence hurt his case but that's the implication of the Crown's argument here and my submission is if an accused can't be convicted where his evidence is merely disbelieved and the trier of fact is not otherwise satisfied of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt then an accused presumably should not be convicted where he does not testify and the trier fact is not convinced otherwise of his or her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Therefore, overturning Noble would create a legal absurdity. An accused would suffer from an adverse inference by remaining silent, but would be able to immunize himself from such adverse inference by giving testimony. That added nothing, but that would trigger the WD charge. Put differently, a lying defendant would be in a better position than a defendant who exercises his or her right to silence which submission i hope shows the radical nature of the crown's position because adopting the crown's position would not only overturn noble but would also effectively reverse wd which highlights the inconsistency respectfully between <clears throat> what's advanced by the Attorney General, and the presumption of innocence, which is the underlying principle of WD. And i just add parenthetically about that, uh, that if you overturn Noble, um, you turn the refusal of the accused to testify, which is really a neutral event at trial, into a piece of evidence against the accused. So as Mr. Silverstein points out in his factum, if it's not evidence, then what business does the jury have in considering it? And if it is evidence, then what you're saying is that the right to silence becomes a piece of evidence against the defendant, which is surely a novel proposition from the perspective of constitutional law. Or, alternatively, you could rewrite WD and say we're going to lower the standard of proof in cases where the accused does not testify, and we'll give you, like, a fourth branch of WD um, where the Crown doesn't prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, but If the accused doesn't testify, you can add that into the mix. That's the fourth part of WD, new charge to the jury. All right, my second point. The Crown's position would penalize, yeah, I was just being a bit ironic there. I'm not really advocating that you add that fourth branch. The Crown's position would penalize the accused for exercising his right against self-incrimination, his right to silence. Um, And I say that because when you draw an adverse inference against a defendant who doesn't testify, um, effectively, you're saying you have the right to remain silent, but if you exercise that, we'll use that silence against you. And as I read the Crown's factum, it says um, there's a distinction between a legal compulsion and a tactical compulsion, and the Charter only protects the uh, defendant against the one being forced by law to testify, but it doesn't protect the defendant against the consequences associated with a decision not to testify, a tactical decision. And my submission or my response to that is that um, that distinction ignores the fact that the consequence of an adverse inference is imposed by law and effectively constitutes legal compulsion even if one were to accept the distinction because the distinction is really um, illusory. You can't get away from the fact that it's a legal burden by renaming it uh, you'd effectively eliminate the right to silence at trial because there would be few cases where the defendant would be so confident in his defense that he would risk the penalty of the judge telling the jury about this added piece of evidence against him by virtue of his decision uh, not to testify so it would be a penalty for exercising the right to silence and in my submission, you can't have a right and impose a penalty for it and say that you're respecting the right. In short, civil liberties come at a cost. A right imposes a duty on, on the courts, and all of us to respect that right, you can't have one without the other.
6: you have a position on whether it should be mandatory?
10: Um, my position is that it should be available to the defendant for the reasons that Mr. Silverstein gave that it costs the system nothing. It flows directly and naturally and logically from a right in the charter.
6: At the, at the request of at the, the at defense, the, at but the, at not required in every case.
10: That's right. Thank you. And m- moreover, I would say that <clears throat> we have much to learn from uh, 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 social science in the United States, and at the moment, um, because of the way the charter is structured, we should go with the assumption that no adverse inference should be drawn until social scientists teach us differently. And, and sorry, I'd, I'd, I, I'd, I'd add that, that sorry, Justice Rothstein, that, uh, that, that the Bloom study cited by Mr. Schreck creates an unanswerable problem for those who would use silence against a defendant. It really does create an unanswerable problem for the Attorney General. Yes, Justice Just
3: Rostein. on that mandatory discretionary point, I think mr silverstein's point was to say that it's mandatory on the judge unless the defendant waves are you saying the same or are you saying the defendant can ask and if he asks then the judge has to uh, instruct are you seeing the distinction that i'm making
10: i'm seeing i'm seeing your distinction i had under i had understood him to say that the american model is the one that he's inviting you to adopt which I had understood to be that the judge must tell unless the, def- unless the defendant says don't tell the jury, don't give that instruction. I, and I must say I didn't study them closely, but, but when I read, as we were preparing the fact in the American Standard Jury Charges, it seemed to me to be the case that they do as a matter of right tell all juries, but the um, defence counsel has a right to ask that it not be given. All right, I'm going to just try to shoehorn one more point in here as I see I have a couple of minutes and, and that's uh, the problem with the, the case-to-meet standard and um, I, I do see that others have addressed it and um, uh, I'll just address the two case-to-meet uh, standards that have been put out there in the case law. The first one is the prima facie case, that if there's a prima facie case and you don't answer it, Uh, you you run the risk of the judge saying to the jury uh, there's a prima facie case, he didn't answer it, adverse inference can be drawn. And I'll just make the point that that's a really low threshold. It means nothing more than evidence has been put forward that gets over the hurdle of a non-suit. And the trial judge, of course, is precluded from assessing credibility um, and can only engage in a limited weighing of circumstantial evidence. So it's really the standard after a preliminary inquiry. And what that means is that for every case that survives a preliminary inquiry, there would be an adverse inference if the defendant doesn't testify, which really means that any time the defendant goes to a jury trial, if he doesn't testify, he's going to get the adverse jury instruction, which essentially means that you've eviscerated the right to silence in jury trials. Okay. Now, the second one is the cogent web of inculpatory facts. And I want to identify three problems with that one because that one's been put forward in a lot of the uh, discussions and Ju- Chief Justice Le put it forward. There are three big problems with that cogent web of inculpatory facts as a new standard in Canadian law. Number one, no one knows what it is, um, and so uh, it would be a new standard. Number two, it's really going to slow down trials. Justice Moldova, it's going to extend the length of trials a great deal because people are going to be bringing motions to find out when they reach the cogent web of inculpatory facts. And it could be at the end of the Crown's case, it could be in multi-defendant trials after the first defendant has put up his defense, after the second defendant, or after the third defendant because you will never know when that cogent uh, web has been reached. And and third, and this is really a problem, it's going to usurp the role of juries because defense counsel is going to continually be asking the trial judge Have we reached that cogent web of inculpatory facts, Your Honor, requiring me to call my client, without which I'm going to get that adverse jury instruction? And that's going to require the judge not only to consider the bare bones evidence, but also the credibility, cogent web of inculpatory facts. So there's no real practical way to implement it. And uh, uh, the alternative is to leave it to the accused and his counsel. Uh, to guesswork, which then opens up the possibility that Defence counsel will guess wrong, the adverse jury instruction will come, and then we will have appellate remedies against Defence counsel for advising his client not to testify and getting the adverse inference, which will, of course, create more work for the courts. And a better thing would be just not to have the inference at all, clean line, follow the Charter. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: The Court will rise for its morning...
11: Ms. Welcome. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. In one sense, this appeal raises two quite narrow issues. Did the tra- instructions given by the trial judge prevent the jury from drawing an adverse inference? against Mr. Prokofew for his failure to testify. In response to this this issue, I say unequivocally that the Court of Appeal for Ontario was correct, that this jury would have understood from the instructions that they couldn't use Mr. Prokofew's silence at trial to infer his guilt. And I'm going to end my argument by making submissions in relation to the charge to the jury. Further, the other narrow issue is in relation to the availability of the proviso and. There I say the Court of Appeal was correct that the admission of the uh, hearsay evidence occasioned no substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice. Mr. Bloom, my colleague, will be making uh, the Crown's arguments in relation to those points. The appeal necessarily involves more than that because the Court has stated constitutional questions about Section 4.6 of the Canada Evidence Act. And the respondent's position uh, is that Section 4.6 properly interpreted doesn't violate the Charter. But the Constitutional questions in my submission require the Court to reflect on two things. One, what's the legislative purpose of Section 4-6? And two, what's the effect of an accused's silence at trial and can anything ever be inferred from that silence? The appellant would have juries be told that nothing can ever be inferred from an accused's silence at trial. Joined by the Criminal Lawyers Association and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, he says that silence is never probative at, at all and it violates the Charter for a trier of fact to ever use silence for any purpose.
7: You can't use it as a make You can't use it as a piece of evidence. And I think that's what we're, we have to focus on, as opposed to any nuances that a jury might take into account in terms of, well, it's unanswered. We're dealing with evidence that's been not contradicted and so on. So, sorry. Uh, I,
11: no, I think, that's a, I think that's a fair point. And I think that the, the language of adverse inference isn't always particularly helpful because, as you know, many of the cases, the pre noble cases, use the language loosely and don't explain exactly what it, <coughs> what it means and i I, I want to i want to um put that uh comment into some perspective by looking back at what this court said both before noble and and, uh and in noble um
12: at some point sorry uh, not necessarily now at some point uh, i wonder if you would help me with the following question Um, there are submissions on both sides as to the risk uh, whether the trial uh, risk of the jury uh, drawing a prohibited or following prohibited reasons. In that respect, at page 7 of the record, we have the trial judge finding, and I quote, there is a significant risk in this case, not just a risk, a significant risk in this case that the jury will engage in reasoning prohibited and noble if I do not give a proper charge to the jury. And he has explained that a little earlier just above. Shouldn't that, or should it, weigh heavily uh, in favour of the uh, proposition that there was, as the trial judge himself thought, having followed the trial, heard the witnesses appreciating all the evidence that there was a significant risk in the absence of the instruction, and yet he couldn't give the instruction?
11: I, I, that's a very fair point, and I think this trial judge clearly clearly was the view that, but for section four six, he would have he wanted to give a no adverse inference instruction uh, to ensure that no adverse <coughs> inference was was drawn by the um, by the jury. Um, that's not the complete answer, though, in my submission, and I'll deal with this more when I when I turn to the to the charge. But let me give you a short answer now, and that is that that it's not for the trial judge to decide. Um, Uh, after the fact whether the jury would have been misled. His thoughts that the jury might be misled are of some significance, but really the more important question is for, as it was for the Court of Appeal, when they look back at the trial, what was said by counsel and then what was said in the the charge to the jury, is there a risk that the, the jury would have Uh, drawing the impermissible inference. So it's of some moment that the trial judge was of that view, and I say the trial judge was wrong in his understanding of Section 4.6, but I don't say that that gets the defense all the way home, that because the trial judge took that view, that's it. Um, Let me say this. Prior to this court's decision in Noble, there were many, many cases in which Canadian courts recognized that an accused silence at trial may have probative value and be of assistance in determining whether a case has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt.
4: But what kind of, uh, the, the issue is really what kind of probative value? Is it evidence or not? And if you have evidence that the, that, does not, uh, that does not rise to the level of proof beyond a uh, reasonable doubt, can you somehow push it over the threshold by using uh, the silence of the, of, the, of, the, of the accused? And then, if you do that, is it not evidence? And evidence that you, that you, that you in a certain way, draw from the accused himself?
11: Um, my submission is that, that you know, the adverse inference has been described as, as creating evidence against an accused. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's a compelling reason not to think about this as evidence, per se. Evidence is what, uh, what, what comes out of witnesses' mouths. Uh, it's the documentary. Then the then evidence.
4: I would dearly like to understand what it is, if it is not evidence when used in such uh, circumstances.
11: It's... Um, a factor that a trier of fact
4: uh, What's a factor?
11: A consideration that the trier of fact may bring
4: Push you again, what's a consideration? It's, it's useless to throw around uh, general words without looking at what it actually means. Does it, does it, would, would uh, the silence of the accused in a certain certain way uh, complete the evidence, uh, complete the Crown's case, add to the Crown's case?
11: It doesn't add to the Crown's case in the sense of being a piece of evidence that the Crown puts on the, on the scales and brings it up to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The Crown's required to adduce a prima facie case, a case which, if believed, could amount to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And whether or not the... Well, d- we're, sure we're,
4: we're going, when we're going to guilt you're not dealing with uh, prima facie evidence. You have got to make your case up and beyond the point of reasonable doubt.
11: Absolutely. So uh, once the Crown has adduced uh, a case to meet or a prima facie case, it's for a jury or a trier of fact to decide whether that evidence in fact establishes an accused guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In making that determination, all I'm saying is that one of the factors that the uh, trier of fact can uh, bring to bear, and this is consistent with what this Court said in in numerous cases that I'm going to just refer you to, is that
4: Uh, We will have to take care. I know that there is a lot of uh, jurisprudence, but I would say that at a certain given point, uh, uh, particularly since the Charter came into application, that there might be perhaps some reassessment of that that, uh, evidence, the historical background of the right to uh, to, uh, silence?
11: Well, certainly in the post-charter era, in Francois, uh, Justice Sapinka comments that the failure of an accused to testify can't shore up a Crown's case, which would otherwise not establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But he says a jury is permitted to draw an adverse inference from the failure of an accused to testify. Now, he doesn't say what that inference is. Uh, similarly in LePage, which was also post-charter 1995, uh, the court comments that although Justice Pardue didn't draw an adverse inference from the accused's failure to offer uh, an explanation for the presence of his fingerprints, once the Crown had proven a prima facie case, the trial judge would be entitled to draw such an inference. Now, No one is saying what that inference is, and it may be that you you get some assistance from what Justice Arbour had to say in uh, Johnson, which is at tab five of my uh, condensed book. There in a case where the accused was charged with robbery and and gun offences and there was no direct evidence identifying him as the perpetrator, but there was circumstantial evidence in particular, the gun was found in his apartment and he was hiding in the apartment when he knew the police were at the door. And what Justice Arbor um, says at the bottom of uh, page 51, um, counsel suggested uh, that this might that there may be uh, uh, facts at the time of arrest that explained the way he was conducting himself. And she says, counsel suggested this might have given him reasons to fear the police and his hiding might have reflected that fear rather than any consciousness of guilt. It's precisely the absence of any evidentiary foundation for that possibility which justifies the trial judge drawing an adverse inference from the accused's failure to testify. And here's what she says the inference is. The trial judge was entitled to infer that the accused had no innocent explanation to offer for his hiding nor for the presence of the gun in the apartment. And that's one of the best uh, examples you can see as to what that inference is and how that inference may be available. And in my submission, that's the crux of what the adverse inference is. Is it appropriate when there's been evidence adduced suggestive of an accused's guilt and that evidence calls out for an explanation, to consider the fact that the trial ju- that the accused didn't testify
1: i wonder if what's going on there though is really an inference in that example i mean uh, i know it's described as such in the in the reasons but you have evidence of the smoking gun you have no explanation the jury says smoking gun plus the other evidence makes it takes the case beyond a reasonable doubt so If you look at it that way, if the accused had an explanation, it might have raised a reasonable doubt, but the Crown's case can be seen as sufficient in its own, in which case you don't have to describe it as an inference from failure to testify. And,
11: Chief Justice McLaughlin, that's similar to what you said in Noble in your concurring reasons concurring with Justice Sapinka, or with Justice um, Lemaire, but dissenting in the result, was that really what we're talking about, what the adverse inference means, is when the Crown's case could amount to proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the failure of an accused to offer. My point is it's not
1: an inference at all, perhaps. Perhaps I was wrong to call it an inference. It, it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. If it's an inference at all that you're drawing from anything, you're just you're just saying the crown's case is out there has not been displaced, mm-hmm. therefore.
11: But in part, the reason it hasn't been displaced is because the accused who was yeah. But was my
1: my my observation, and you can accept it or reject it, but I'd just like you to put your mind to it, is that that is not really an inference. It's just simply. You're not inferring anything to help make the Crown's case. It's just that there is nothing there. I'm wondering if we've been inaccurately in some of the cases treating it as though it were an inference when it's just an absence of evidence in mathematical terms, a big zero.
11: Well, I don't think it's a, a zero. It's a zero in terms of being a piece of evidence. I accept that part of what you've said. But it's not a zero in terms of whether it can have any probative force in terms of the trial.
4: Well, evidence is something that has probative force, otherwise it is not evidence. And then if you're using it in this this manner, you're actually using the silence of uh, of uh, of the accused against himself.
11: Well, I want to let me deal with why I say that there's no mm-hmm. charter violation in using, in thinking about an accused silence in the manner in which
7: direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. In the context of direct evidence, I think your position would be if the evidence is uncontradicted, that's a factor that the jury may take into account. It's not a determinative factor necessarily, but it's something the jury may wish to consider in deciding whether or not the direct evidence is credible and reliable and safe to act on. When you're into circumstantial evidence, then you're into possible inferences or, or that are beyond speculation. What, what legitimate inferences can be drawn, and if there's no evidence to support some other inference that might exist, but you don't hear from the accused or anybody else, then it's open to the jury to draw perhaps the inference that the crown is asking. I mean,
11: I, I accept that what you're saying is, is, is precisely my position: that when there's an absence of evidence um, to rebut what could amount to a could amount to proof beyond a reasonable doubt, in determining whether or not it does amount to proof beyond a reasonable doubt, thinking about the failure of uh, there to be defence evidence to um, to challenge the crown's case is considering the accused necessarily requires you to consider the fact that the accused has been silent
3: you 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 conceded though that you can't use the accused silence to make weight for the crown's case i
11: think that's a, that's fair
3: if you've got a, a jury how, how do you know when the crown has met the proof beyond reasonable doubt standard uh, uh, and 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 that and that the silence is not being used by the jury to make weight.
11: Um, you know that's a that's a difficult question, and it's a difficult question in particular because of the presence of section 4.6. and section 4.6 of the Canada Evidence Act precludes there from being comment. And this court has always interpreted um, section 4.6 comment to mean that there can't be anything. Um, Uh, adverse to the interests of the accused. So what can you say? What, What should jury instructions look like if you were to accept that the accused's failure to testify has some relevance and could have some probative force? The jury has to be told about the burden of proof and that the burdens on the Crown to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury has to be told about the presumption of innocence and that the accused starts the process innocent and remains innocent unless and until the Crown proves guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The trial judge in my submission can go further and instruct the jury that in this case, the accused didn't testify, he's not required to testify, and in fact has a constitutional right to remain silent. I think the judge can go further and say that there may be many reasons why an accused chooses not to testify. And probably a jury should be told that the fact that an accused didn't testify, doesn't on its own prove guilt, um, and I draw on the English uh, model instructions for that fact, and I think that's uh, unassailable, is that the failure of an accused to testify alone can't prove his guilt.
4: I would be quite prudent about using the the UK uh, situation as a, as a precedent here in uh, Canada, given the legislative developments that took place, which uh, drove English criminal criminal law in a direction that seems to be quite uh, different from uh, Canadian law.
11: uh, Okay, that's a fair point. I accept that it's different, but I I use the model instruction only as an example of what might be said in order to ensure, uh, to protect the interests of the accused. And then I think a jury can be told to consider all of the evidence and the circumstances before them in determining whether the guilt has been proven beyond a reasonable <laughs> doubt. You know, Mr. Adario talked about what standard you have to get to before you can tell the jury that they can draw an adverse inference. Does it have to be a prima facie case or a web of inculpatory evidence? Or, I, I don't think you have to get into that. I don't think there has to be a voir dire on that. I think what there has to be uh, is... The Crown's adduced a prima facie case, and the judge leaves it for a trier of fact to decide what, if any, relevance uh, the fact that the case is unanswered by the accused has in determining whether or not the um, a, a reason, the Crown's proven the case beyond a reasonable doubt. I want to go back for a moment to um, to why I say that, the, that using uh, silence in this, in this way doesn't violate the right not to be compelled and the right to silence. You'll recall from uh, Noble that Justice Sapinka refers heavily on the, um, on the right to silence and, and uh, refers heavily in this court's decision in chambers, uh, which precludes the Crown from using the accused's pretrial silence against him as justifying uh, uh, prohibiting any reliance on the accused's Silence at Trial, and I've included in my condensed book at Tab 6, I won't take you there, uh, the excerpt from Justice Sapinka's decision. It's my position that there is a principled and important distinction to be drawn between the situation an accused finds himself in at the point of arrest or detention and at the point when the Crown has adduced uh, a prima facie case. And and there can be no dispute, indeed, Justice Sapinka agrees with this in, um, in Crawford, there's no dispute that an accused is in a very vulnerable position on arrest or detention uh, vis-a-vis the police. He may not know what is being investigated. He may not know what the allegations are. He hasn't had full disclosure. He may not know even what charges he's facing. He may or may not have had legal advice and certainly won't have had fulsome legal advice on the pros and cons of speaking with a police officer. and and. I accept for all of those reasons that justice Sapinka's conclusion and this conclusion of this court that it would be a snare and a delusion to say that there, ha, you have the right to silence, but the fact that you exercise that right can be used against him in, given the vulnerable position that he 's in by contrast i 'm going to submit to you that the crown is or that the accused is in a very different position at the end of a crown 's case he 's at the culmination of the case against him he's had full disclosure he's seen how uh, various witnesses evidence create a case against him he's had the opportunity to challenge those witnesses through cross-examination to see how they hold up he has, in, in most instances, benefited from the advice and assistance of counsel, including being told the pros and cons of testifying. And indeed, if you were to take a different view than that taken in Noble, counsel would have an obligation to explain to an accused the potential for an adverse inference being drawn against him or for the, 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 accused, the potential for his silence having an effect on the way in which the trier of fact decides the case. And in my submission, the accused is thus very well positioned to make a careful and informed choice about whether it's tactically to his... The question
1: isn't whether he's positioned to make a choice. The question is what inference we can draw from it. And your friends say there's a lot of reasons why, with the advice of counsel, informed better as he is at that point of his situation, understanding it completely, he would say, or a rational person would decide, I'm not going to testify, that have nothing to do with his guilt. So that's the point you have to get to, not that he's well informed. I think your friends concede that.
11: Well, my point is that he's uh, well-informed to make a decision as to whether or not he wants to risk the possibility of the adverse inference being drawn against him or or some inference being drawn against him by not meeting the the Count Crown's case. That was the only point that I was was trying to make. Um, I'm going to suggest that there's two further reasons why uh, the principle against self-incrimination and the right to silence aren't violated by permitting the failure of an accused to testify uh, to be uh, considered by the by the trier of fact. The first is this. I say that there's a principled and appropriate distinction to be drawn between a legal obligation to testify or compulsion to testify, something which an accused is protected against under Section 11C, and a tactical or strategic obligation to testify that someone may feel in the face of a Strong Crown's case. And I say that Section 11C, there's no reason for Section 11C to go so far as to protect an accused uh, beyond the legal compulsion to testify. And, and I draw uh, in support of that argument on the comments of uh, Justice Corey in, uh, in BOSS at the, at the Court of Appeal, which is excerpted at uh, Tab 8 of my condensed book. And, and he confronts the argument that's made before you today that permitting an adverse inference uh, effectively compels an accused into the box. And uh, what he says is the use of the word compelled in 11C indicates to him a legal compulsion forcing an accused to give evidence. The tactical obligation felt by an accused will no doubt increase with the strength of the Crown's case, but it remains just that, a tactical and not a legal compulsion. And in my submission- Well,
4: it brings us to the remarks made by the Chief Justice a few moments ago that there may be... Very many reasons for not wanting to uh, to give evidence and not only consciousness of guilt
13: I, many- and
4: uh, and uh, that in practical terms you may be putting uh, the the uh, the, uh, the accused before and in front of an almost impossible choice having either you feel that you're in a, in, a, in a difficult pos- position if you give Evidence and, and if you don't give it, you have it will be it will be interpreted and applied against you with the strong possibility that a jury may may use it, in fact, uh, to supplement the the case of the uh, of the crown.
11: Um, I think a jury can be told that there may be many reasons why an accused doesn't testify. Uh, the,
4: the, the, the jury may be told uh, many things, but we will have a precious few, a few means to know uh, what the, the jury actually told, and that's, that's where this uh, possibility of drawing in uh, an evidence may be extremely, uh, uh, may be, in my mind, extremely dangerous and was, uh, and was considered to be such in many, uh, in many occasions.
11: Um, I want to to move on, if I might, and deal with why I say that there's no um, violation of the presumption of innocence in considering the failure of an accused to testify. And, uh, you know, this Court had certainly said that in in, uh, Appleby before uh, Justice Sopinka found the contrary in in Noble. But I think... uh, there are a couple of and Appleby is, is in my condensed book. I'm not going to take you there. I'm going to suggest that the presumption of innocent means an accused starts the trial presumed innocent and remains that way until the crown proves guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But it it means there's no obligation to present evidence. But in my submission, there's no uh, justification for it going so far as to insulate an accused from any possible inference uh, or consequence that might flow. Uh, when a trier of fact thinks the case calls out for a response, and and I don't want
12: to... Sorry, just on that narrow point, um, isn't the jury instructed that the, quite properly, that the presumption of innocence uh, doesn't vanish at the end of the Crown's case or at the end of all the evidence, but remains in full effect, even during the deliberations by the jury? Absolutely. And that's the point of the requirement that, and, present and that the accused remains, the presumption is operative, continues to operate until the verdict.
11: I think the presumption remains remains operative, but there's nothing inconsistent between the presumption remaining operative and the trier of fact uh
12: Saying he must be guilty or she must be guilty because they didn't testify?
11: Well, saying that uh, that the the accused hasn't offered an an explanation, and so when I'm trying to decide whether this case that could prove reasonable, prove prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, does in fact prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, has there been a challenge to that evidence? Has there been a reason for me to think that it might not? Uh, and if there hasn't, the failure of, of the, the, the absence of but that there is, chel-
4: there is always this page you're t- talking about ev- evidence that could per- perhaps but the, uh, the problem is that the, uh, the, uh, the inference might be used to supplement a case that might per- 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 perhaps but is also perhaps not quite there.
11: Well, you know, that argument's been put to me by my friends that, you know, an accused who would otherwise be acquitted is likely to be convicted because of the adverse inference. And with the greatest of respect, that's not the way um, a, a jury or a trier of fact considers the evidence. Uh, you consider all the juries are told to consider all of the evidence but not- it
4: brings us to this question is this evidence or not you're always the way uh, the way you're dealing with uh, with it it's almost an invitation to the j- jury or the trial or, uh, or the trial of fact uh, to to use it as evidence that will be thrown into the pot with all the rest to determine whether uh, the crown has made its case uh, uh, beyond a uh, reasonable doubt.
11: Well, I'm going to suggest that it's not, it's not evidence, and, and I, I wouldn't want the court to, to leave thinking that I had s- suggested it was evidence. I, uh, but but it if it be-
4: is not ev- evidence, if it is used as, uh, as evidence, what, what is it?
11: It's, uh, I think we're going in circles, Justice Lavelle, as to what it is, and I'm, not, I, I'm sure I'm not assisting you as much as I, I wish I could.
4: It will, it will become something, uh, something pretty, pretty much like like the famous duck. If it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck.
12: Ms. Wolcom, I wonder if I could uh, address your concern this way. Uh, it may be presumptuous to, for me to... Uh, state your concern, but I think it is that where the evidence is compelling and cries out for an explanation, and the accused is in a unique position to give that explanation, there's nothing wrong with the jury convicting. The problem, uh, though, the question is, it's one thing to say that unanswered evidence beyond a reasonable doubt or unanswered evidence that satisfies the jury or trier of fact beyond a reasonable doubt is a proper basis for conviction, isn't it quite another to say that the failure of the accused to testify is something from which you can draw an adverse inference, which means you can think the person to be guilty? That's the adverse inference. It's not the failure to provide an explanation as such. See, you have an unexplained evidence compelling by the Crown and I would tend to agree from a long time in the business that that person, if the accused is in a unique position to give the explanation and doesn't, the person will be convicted. The person won't be convicted for failing to testify but because there's a compelling and unanswered case. And maybe, we're,
11: maybe it's the way we're describing, it, the, the, the way the language that's been used to describe what the significance of an accused's failure to testify is needs some clarification. And, and because, in effect, um, that's exactly what I'm saying, is where the case is one where you'd expect there to be an answer and a jury would expect there to be an answer, um, and there isn't an answer. That's going to assist the jury in finding proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you start giving an instruction that you can make nothing of the make nothing of the fact that the accused that that's off the table. That's not even a factor. It suggests that you, that, that that the failure of an accused to challenge the crown's case uh, is something that you can't even think about in determining whether the crown's case has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I say we've gone the wrong way. Can I ask you,
6: you a practical? Go ahead
4: you uh, you do not have to say that you need uh infer- inferences if you have as my colleagues say uh, evidence that is uh, that is uncontradicted uh, it, it's enough to to say well we have not, not, uh, we, uh, we have made th- this case there is no other ev- ev- evidence that's it and you do not need all this uh, effort in my view to try to bring in uh, inferences uh, from, the, from the silence of the, uh, of the accused. I think it's, it's a rather difficult task in my mind uh, for the Court to uh, craft in the present uh, constitutional environment rules that would amount to uh, pretty, pretty much to what uh, the United Kingdom did by leg- uh, legislation, and what you're advancing seems to, su- su- uh, to suggest that in some way, through legislative inter- inter- interpretation, whittling down some, uh, some of the Charter rights, we should give as much leeway as English law uh, grants to, uh, to uh, courts and uh, prose- prosecutors in the United King- King- uh, Kingdom. Okay. Justice
6: uh, we've been operating on the on the theoretical level. What if, what could, what, and, and the level of inferences. I have a practical question to ask you. I I understand your argument to essentially say, let's go back to Boss, uh, not Noble. Uh, you can say an, inf- an adverse inference can be drawn. Is that essentially your argument? I
11: don't think you could ever say that an adverse inference could be drawn because that was perceived to violate and, Section And that's Texas. my question.
6: You had you had told us earlier in listing all of the things that a judge should say or could say to a jury, you are, um, you must be told, you need to know that the accused has a constitutionally protected right not to give evidence. Yes, if, If you could give me wording then on how this, what you're proposing, would be told to the jury in the context of he or she has a constitutionally protected right not to say anything.
11: Juries can't be told expressly that they can consider the failure of an accused to testify. They can be told expressly. I don't want to cut you
6: off. No, no, that's exactly my question. What is it that that we're talking about in terms of a a charge to the jury?
11: Well, in in many respects, the charge to the jury uh, would leave it it unsaid in the way that it always did in the pre-Noble era, that we assume that juries uh, will think about the failure of an accused to testify, and it's for the jury then to decide whether or not uh, this is the kind of case Case where they think it's relevant or not. And you can imagine many uh, cases where a defense counsel might stand up in a closing address, as as was Mr. Prokofy's counsel did here, and say, my client didn't testify. He didn't have to. There wasn't a case for against him. Um, and a jury can... Uh, you know, depending on how the, what the judge says and whether the judge takes away the availability of some inference being drawn, which I say was done in this case, that it's, it has to be left for the jury. I think Section 4.6 effectively precludes a trial judge from saying, giving clear and uh, direct instructions about what what a jury is to do with, um, uh, if they're to consider it in determining whether or not the, a reasonable doubt's been been raised. Um, I don't think that they can go that far. On the other hand, if you're not with me on on Noble and you...
6: You said that for, under 4.6 you can say you're, this accused was not required to testify. I think you can. It's a constitutionally protected right. Yes. Doesn't that really close the door on your argument that Noble doesn't apply? And what other logical conclusion is there but that you can't draw an adverse inference from something he or she was constitutionally protected from having to do.
11: Well, if the, uh, despite that constitution, I, I think the instruction that can't be given if is, is if, despite that constitutional right not to testify, you come to the conclusion that this was a case where he should have testified uh, because the case is so overwhelming that it called out for an answer and the absence of any, of, of any kind of uh, answer uh, leads us to, leads us to think that he doesn't have an answer that that's permissible, although that can't be expressly said.
6: Right. Can't be expressly said. I don't think it can under Section 4.6. And I'm not really clear what we're talking about in terms of The instructions
11: not taking away the possibility of the jury considering the failure of an accused to testify when determining whether or not that Crown's case has been um, proven beyond a reasonable doubt.
14: Could, while, we, while we stop there for a moment, could you help me with what the jury can be told about the testifying, the use of the the fact of the uh, silence of one accused in regards to the case of the testifying co-accused? the, For example, the charge that's proposed by the appellant at paragraph 79 of their brief is, you may recall that counsel for Mr. Salty brought to your attention the fact that Mr. Prokofiev did not testify. You may consider Mr. Prokofiev's choice not to testify, as it may affect your determination of whether the allegations against Mr. Salty have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt.
11: I think that's what, right.
14: it, what, what are we going to say to the jury when the jury comes in and said, what did you mean when you said, "as it may affect," well,
11: that's one of the problems with the uh, with saying that you're not allowed to consider uh, consider the failure of Mr. Prokofy to testify at all. And, and you know that the difficulty is a co-accused is entitled to say to the jury, uh, "He didn't testify. You can you should, or you, you can consider that in determining um, Solti's uh, guilt and whether Solti's guilt has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Solti is entitled to to say that in order to make full answer in defense. What uh, Solty can't say is he's guilty because he didn't testify, and what the trial judge can't allow is, is he's guilty because he didn't testify. But if, if noble remains the law, the trial judge is in a very difficult uh, position to explain the difference between how Mr. Paracofi's failure to testify is relevant in relation to Solty, but then not relevant in relation to his own, uh, uh, his own um, whether proof's be- proof can be reasonable doubt has been established in relation to him.
14: I just wondered if you... Might help me a little bit with how is it relevant to the case of the testifying co-accused?
11: Wait, how is it relevant to whether Salty is is Salty is guilty or not? Um, it can only be relevant because Salty provided a credible explanation that points that points the finger away from him. I mean, if there's one, if only one of the, if only one of the two is going to be found guilty, and one testifies and explains what looks like uh, evidence against him and points a finger at the other uh, and the other doesn't respond, it may be that, the, the, that there's no answer to, to his allegations that it was the second person. I'm not sure I can.
12: Uh, well, can one, I, one I, of sir? the problems in the context of this trial, it seems to me, is this. As we said earlier, as we agreed earlier, it's one thing to draw a conclusion from the fact that compelling evidence is unanswered we're concerned with here, I think, is you know, the use of the silence of the accused to overcome the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof, or more simply, to infer from the silence of the accused that he or she is guilty. Now, the particular problem in this case, uh, which is reproduced at page 12 of the appellant's factum, and appears elsewhere, is that uh, Mr. Solty's counsel said, Solti testified, that's because he's innocent. Prokofiev didn't testify. Now, what are you going to think about that? Now, how could that not mean that he didn't testify because he's guilty? And that's different, it seems to me, qualitatively. That goes to the presumption of innocence in a different way than saying the Crown's evidence is unexplained.
11: And I I think in order to respond to that question, I've got to take you to the charge in this case. Um, And uh, unless you have other questions, there were quite a a few other submissions I was hoping to make about overruling Noble. um, And many of them are contained in my my factum, and uh, um, I'm confident that... that, that those arguments have been fairly put there. I want to turn now uh, and spend some time on uh, on the charge to the jury in this case. And uh, the Justice Doherty for the Court of Appeal deals with uh, the issue of the charge um, in his reasons beginning at paragraph 41. It's in my, excerpted in my uh, condensed book at tab uh, 22. And, And it's significant that uh, that Justice Doherty looks at the instructions, I think, as he had to in light of what the closing addresses, Justice Fish, that you've just referred to, were. And what he finds is that while I appreciate my friend's point that, that the arguments of counsel can't absolve the judge of the obligation of instructing a jury properly, but what he does say is that the instructions or that the closing addresses give a context um, to the jury before the closing, before the charge to the jury. And so what he says is he looks at the context, and that includes Mr. Salty's comments, and it includes the um, appellant's counsel's comments in response, because, of course, um, um, counsel for Mr. Prokofew, uh in his closing address, responded to uh, the arguments that had been made by counsel for Salty. And, and with a fairly extensive response, that, uh, that Justice Doherty then refers to at paragraph uh, 43. And I say that that he's right that uh, the Appellant went quite far to reinforce that he was under no obligation to testify and that he benefited from the presumption of innocence and that the burden of proof was on the Crown to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a starting point. That doesn't get the crown's argument all the way home, but I say that's a starting point. That, in light of what Mr. Salty's counsel had said, you have Mr. Prokofiev's counsel responding, and uh, and then what you have in the in the charge to the jury are what I'm going to submit are careful instructions that took away from the jury the possibility of drawing an adverse inference, and the instructions that I rely on are excerpted at the at the previous tab at tab. Uh, 20, um, one. And in my submission, there can be no issue that at page 120, the trial judge explained to the jury that the Crown had to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. If you flip to the next page, which is 123... I'm, and
5: sorry, I s- I'm sorry, before you get to the, the instructions as such... How did it come up that the uh, judge had to make a ruling on whether or not he would make um, comments in his instructions?
11: There were, there was a, there were submissions made after uh, uh, counsel's closing addresses about what the judge could or couldn't say and what the effect of Section 4.6 was and what the effect of this Court's, Justice Sapinka's comment at paragraph 95 of Noble was that no comment could be made, no instruction could be given, that no adverse inference could be drawn. And, and so there was some fulsome discussion, and it was after that that the ruling uh, took place that the judge felt he, he was bound by Noble not to say
5: anything. And did the uh, defense counsel agree that the judge would not make, make any comment, or did he insist for a comment? No, he,
11: he wanted an instruction, um, and the judge felt that he was he was precluded from doing it. Um, Page 123 is an important passage, and at the top of that page, the trial judge says, you make that decision from all of the evidence given in the trial, there will be no more evidence, you will consider nothing else. You're entitled to use common sense, you must not speculate, however, about what evidence there might have been, or permit yourself to guess or make up theories without evidence to support them. And I'm gonna suggest, though, effectively, what the trial judge is doing here is telling them that uh, Things like the failure of an accused to testify, which isn't evidence, can't be considered. Uh, It's not a piece of the picture. It's not a piece of evidence that they can consider. Um, There's a passage which is not in my condensed book, which I commend to you. It's on page uh, 125 of the the, uh, uh, volume 5 of the appellant's record, which um, reinforces this position that under our law, you uh, make the, you determine guilt or innocence on the basis of evidence put before you, and only that evidence so again, the trial judge reinforced to the jury that it was the evidence that was to be considered. the trial judge that 's at page one hundred and twenty five of volume five of the appellant's record it 's not in my condensed book, and it probably should have been
13: um, can, can I ask you this? I understand you take the position that these standard parts of the charge uh, were adequate in these circumstances, that a specific instruction was not necessary. But given that we've got counsel for the co-accused actually saying that the accused silence meant he had something or suggesting that the accused silence meant he had something to hide, and given we've got the trial judge actually saying that he thought um, there was a significant risk that the jury would engage in the uh, reasoning prohibited in Noble. What circumstances in your submissions would require a special charge of noble stance?
11: Well, uh, you know, in these circumstances, it could, certainly could have been given. I, I'm not suggesting for a second that it, it, wouldn't, it would have been an error in these circumstances to give it. The trial judge clearly was the view that he should give it, but for his view of six and Noble, he would have given it. Uh, and it could it have been given here absolutely are there circumstances where it must be given i think in circumstances where counsel has gone further than they did in this address it might a trial judge might come to the conclusion it's it's necessary i would caution this court against coming to the conclusion that it's mandatory in every case where there's co-accused or indeed mandatory in every case
13: i wasn't suggesting in every case i was wondering what circumstances in your view would trigger uh, a requirement on the facts of those of that particular case
11: circumstances as i said where where a counsel's gone too far um where there's been suggestions made that it must mean that, that you know there's suggestions out there that an accused must be guilty because he hasn 't testified and you're
13: saying the the co counsel's uh, language in this case didn't, didn't go, go far that enough. far,
11: yes um I want to continue going through the charge uh, and referring you to the passages in the charge quickly um, before my, my colleague speaks. But, um, and, and we're at page 123. And as I indicated to you, I think it's important to reflect on the fact that the judge tells the jury it's only the evidence that matters. At the next page, at page 132, the judge gives what I think we accept are the standard instructions on, uh, on the presumption of innocence. And over to 133, there's another passage that I say is critical where the judge reminds the jury that Mr. Solti and Mr. Prokofi do not have to present evidence or prove anything. They do not have to prove they're innocent from the start to the finish. The Crown is the Crown that must prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And the trial judge then goes on um, at page 134 to explain to them that they can only convict if on the basis of the evidence they're satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's interesting when you look at page 135 Based on the evidence or lack of evidence, if the jury's not sure, they're told that they should find him not guilty. They're not told that they can convict on the basis of evidence and lack of evidence. They're told only that they can acquit if they aren't satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt on the proof of evidence or lack of evidence. And and in my submission, um, the only other passage I'd commend to you is a passage at page 142 of the charge, which isn't in the condensed book. But I think, as I reflected on this, I think it's important for you to look at that passage because that's where the trial judge reminds the jury what evidence is and reminds them that they're to decide the facts on the evidence that they've heard and saw in the courtroom and consider all of that evidence and considering or reaching their verdict. And then he outlines for them the evidence is what witnesses said, it's their answers, it's the exhibits, it's the agreed statements of fact, and it's, it's, what's bef- it's, the, it's, the, it's what we all accept as evidence as opposed to the absence of evidence.
12: Ms. Wilcombe, this might be a convenient uh, time for you to answer my first question some time ago. And the question, uh, if I may remind you, is this. Let me preface it by saying there are certainly passages that you've cited uh, which indicate the standard and the presumption, particularly Mr. Solpey and Prokofiev do not have to present evidence So on. Now, here's the trial judge who is giving the instructions to the jury, knows what his instructions to the jury will be. They include all these passages and the trial judge says, "Well, notwithstanding everything I'm going to tell the jury, there is a significant risk in this case that the jury will engage in prohibited reasoning." And goes on to say, "But for uh, six, before six, would have given that instruction because it was necessary." So,
11: what, what do we make uh, of that? Well, well that's the question. Is, that's the question. I, yeah, I, I, I yeah. take it, and, and, and that's a fair. How,
12: how can we? I'm sorry, sitting. In, you know, what Justice Doherty said, if I may, is that, well, the Court of Appeal is not bound. That's true, but ought it not to carry significant weight?
11: I think it carries some weight, but I think that there's also what we do in appeal review cases all the time is to look at whether jur- judges always think that the instructions that they're giving are, are the right thing to do and that and this judge thought it would have been the right thing to do. That doesn't mean that he's... Correct uh, that it was the only way to ensure that the adverse inference wouldn't be drawn, and um, frankly, five judges of the court of appeal looked at this and came to a different conclusion. And it's open to you to come to the conclusion that they were right. It's of some significance, but I don't say it's. I say it's not. It's not certainly not dispositive, and it's one factor that you can think about. But uh, that's as high as I think you can fairly put it. Subject to any questions on my submissions, I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Bloom. Just,
14: just one: if we were to uh, conclude that there was an error of law through non-direction on this point, I didn't understand in your written material that you were relying on the proviso.
11: I, I didn't uh, indicate that in my in my written material. If the courts of the view, though, and Mr. Uh, Silverstein's taken the position that I'm not entitled to re- uh, uh, rely on the proviso because this is. Uh, um, this is so fundamental it's like a wd instruction that the its absence precludes reliance on the proviso and i reflected in the question that justice moldaver asked uh, mr silverstein as to whether i could argue that, that if that if you conclude that this is an error that the case was so strong that uh, the proviso should be applicable and I, I rely on many of the arguments my 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 co-counsel will make about the uh, strength of the crown's case and say that you may welcome to the view that the proviso is applicable in these circumstances
15: The respondent's position with respect to the admission of the notations is that Justice Doherty was correct. Entirely apart from the evidence regarding discount sales, there was overwhelming evidence of the appellant's knowing involvement in the fraudulent scheme. And that evidence was far from just the evidence of Salty and Tulloch. There were two sets of key documents, two sets. First there were 16 handwritten documents admitted by the appellant to be in his own handwriting. These documents were the appellant's own instructions for the execution of the transactions subject to the fraudulent scheme. And they are collectively Exhibit 263. And one is reproduced at Tab 30 of the respondent's condensed book. And I draw to the Court's attention just briefly. The appellant's handwriting isn't just a scribble. He sets out in detail sell to GFAP, that's Glen Abbey Forest Products at $457,875 in GST and so on. And there were 16 documents just like that admitted by him to be in his handwriting. And equally important, there were also exhibits 285 to 295 and Justice Abella made reference to those, I believe, or my friend did uh, as well, Ms. Grant. And these were invoices delivered by the appellant through his company, naris Consulting, to Salty to cover the payment of proceeds from the fraudulent transactions. And these invoices were introduced by counsel for the appellant in cross-examination of Salty. So there was no doubt about whether or not These were invoices that were paid. Mr. Fedorowicz, counsel for the appellant, put it to Solty. Well, these were paid by you, weren't they? These were paid by you, weren't they? And one of them is very instructive. It's at tab 32 of our condensed book. This one uh, is Exhibit 291-15028. And this one is for 115 hours in one week, at $150 an hour for a total of $17,000 and some odd dollars plus GST That's $18,000 in one week for consulting on transactions involving heavy equipment when everybody acknowledges that there was no heavy equipment. The absurdity of that would not be lost on any trier of fact. Then my friend Ms. Grant referred to corroboration and she said that the trial judge listed a number of bases on which the Vetrovic witness Tulloch could be confirmed and that one of the bases was the notations. Well, two other bases that were put to the jury were the two sets of documents that I just referred to. The invoices and the documents setting out the instructions and how the transactions uh, were to be executed. And in my submission, putting aside the notations Those two sets of documents were abundant bases to confirm uh, the evidence of Tulloch. And then that leads us to the question of proof of the receipt of the proceeds. I ask rhetorically, why was discount sales relevant? Well, discount sales was relevant as one conduit of proceeds of the fraud to the appellant. Well, there was another conduit, and that was Neres Consulting, and Neres Consulting was the name on the invoices that the appellant delivered to Solti, the ones, the ones that Mr. Fedorowicz's counsel for the appellant put to Solti, including the one for the 115 hours of work. So there was no doubt that quite apart from the proceeds, assuming that there could be some inference from, or quite apart from the notations, there was abundant evidence of proof of the receipt by the appellant uh, of proceeds of the fraudulent transactions. And that that leads to the question of, well, why was discount sales relevant? Well, in my submission, discount sales was relevant only in respect of the question of proceeds and also in respect of the, the corroboration point which I've dealt with. So there really was nothing that the Crown hadn't proved quite apart from the uh, notations um, in, in terms of uh, proving to a trier of fact that the the case was overwhelming. And that was the point uh, that Justice Doherty made uh, in his analysis of the application of the proviso, that the, uh, the notations were a small brick and a very large wall of evidence. Uh, Justice Doherty did review independently uh, the various connections between the appellant and discount sales. And my friend... Uh, Ms. Grant reviewed some of that but all of that is uh, is really uh, by the by the point is why was discount sales relevant discount sales was relevant a because it showed uh, proof of the proceeds and that was proven uh, by the uh, invoices delivered by nearest consulting uh, on behalf of the appellant the appellant use of uh, nearest consulting and it was relevant uh, in respect of corroboration and there were two other independent documentary basis of corroboration and that's putting aside all of the oral evidence of both and Solti, which the jury was entitled to evaluate uh, in light of all of the uh, uh, confirmatory evidence that that did exist and, and those are my submissions.
16: Uh, Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. uh, The Attorney General of Canada intervenes today for the purpose of supporting the constitutionality of Section 4, Sub-6, the Canada Evidence Act. For No other particular uh, legal argument that we are making. We're focused on that particular issue here today. Um, I'd like to address just for the first couple minutes of my presentation a uh, comment that the uh, Chief Justice made earlier this morning about being concerned about interpreting four sub-six in a manner that would be contrary to what are two very explicit decisions of this Court by Justice Sapinka and two majority judgments in Crawford and Noble, both pre charge as well. Um, it's, uh, I'm unable to say to the Court whether or not those sections would have been argued in that case. I suggested in Crawford it probably was, but in Noble, when you read Noble, you see that there's a discourse between Justice Lemaire and Justice Sapinka about the implications of the decision in that case. And it leads more to an impression as if it's a, a back and forth about uh, you're suggesting this, therefore the result on 4.6 would be that. And I don't really know if that particular subsection might have been argued before the court when Noble was, was uh, present. But uh, the Crawford decision, it certainly could have been. However, the Attorney General of Canada is suggesting that there are four basic reasons why 4.6 should be interpreted as a manner that's suggested by all the parties. First off, it reflects Parliament's intention. Going back 130, 140 years, uh, it's somewhat frustrating and comforting, I guess, that they were discussing the exact same issues we're discussing today, Uh, comforting in the sense that maybe they're difficult issues to resolve and frustrating in that maybe we don't have an answer for them today. But Parliament's intent at the time was through reading these particular submissions, both in the House and in the Senate, that they were concerned of ensuring that an accused decision since they're now going to allow accused to testify on his or own, her own behalf, that they be allowed to uh, to testify that they're not, inferences not, not drawn against them for the purposes of the execution of that particular presumption. There was, in fact, in the Senate, um, a recommendation for an amendment that align, and that no presumption of guilt shall be drawn, to be added to the subsection 4.6 in the Senate Committee, but it was never actually added uh, at the time in the, past, the act was properly passed. So... Uh, not only is uh, the section itself uh, one in which has had a history of of a period of time in which there has been interpretation of it broad enough for the purposes of providing the interpretation that's being suggested, it's consistent with Parliament's intent. And uh, no change to that particular provision has been made really since 1906 when the last phrase removing it from only a jury instruction situation to a trial by judge alone or a trial by jury. Secondly. The suggested interpretation supports any constitutional uh, convention that this court may uh, deem to be appropriate, considering whatever issue you decide on Noble, but it is consistent with that particular approach. That is, it accords with the presumption of innocence and the right to silence, and the interpretation is consistent with that. Thirdly, it is consistent with this court's determinations in those cases where this court has directly considered it. And the cases have been referred to by uh, my friends, uh, McConnell case, the Avon case. I mean, the McConnell case is very similar to this particular one. Uh, the instruction is a little more broad, and the question becomes whether or not the section about comment is so narrow or so broad as it would allow comments that would be beneficial to an accused. And this Court, when asked that specific question, says yes. If the comment is beneficial to the accused, it can be used, and six is not a prohibition to that particular position. And finally, of course, where you have two potential interpretations of a section, the section that accords with charter principles should be the one that's uh, found to be the one that's uh, the appropriate one in the circumstance. Here, if you could interpret Section 4.6 to say comment, means you can't advise a trialer or a fact of a constitutional right of an accused. It doesn't really make much sense. I mean, really, it doesn't. So then, what's the result? The result is that the phrase comment actually includes things that can be beneficial to the accused's position. So, although there is some concern that uh, this court's pronouncements on the section may in fact be uh, a barrier to interpreting the sections we're suggesting, I think when looking at those kinds of, those four particular principles, that they do in fact accord with the proper interpretation we were all suggesting. Secondly, I just want to address the issue about whether or not the no adverse inference charge should be mandatory. I was uh, trying to consider whether or not there are any charges that are mandatory other than the most fundamental presumption of innocence, uh, evidence is what you hear, these types of charges that are are mandatory, not necessarily waived. Um, This particular provision we're suggesting should not be mandatory, and we've outlined the reasons in our fact, and we would say that it's based on four principles. Uh, Specifically, that the constitutional principles that we're dealing with here do not require it in every case. There may be situations where the rights to silence presumption of innocence are being protected, and this this being a more case-specific type of charge, I would suggest, that in the particular circumstances, uh, 11C, 11D, and Section 7 do not require it in every particular case. Most importantly, I think, though, the trial judge is best positioned to make the, the call. Is the trial judge in a position where he or she believes that in this particular case, there may be a situation in which the jury may draw an adverse inference incorrectly, and I should provide them with that instruction? And this Court has been very consistent in providing trial judges with sufficient um, discretion in making the determination of whether or not a particular charge should be made. On the suggestion of counsel, of course, for the Crown or the defense, and I'll talk about unrepresented counsel in just a second. Also, the trial judge should be given some discretion about the wording of the charge. And even in Lifkis, for example, uh, and in W.D., there is a statement from this Court about Uh, the fact that the particular charge isn't necessarily something that has to be said word for word, it's not a mathematical equation. And this situation we're suggesting would be in the same particular realm. That the charge that's given would have to accord with the particular facts of this particular case, that would be before a trial judge, and they should be given discretion in order to do that. Also, the charge sometimes may be unnecessary, Uh, it may be unhelpful, and in some cases it may be entirely inappropriate. Uh, Interestingly enough, McConnell is actually a case where there was a reverse onus involved. But there may be circumstances where the charge to say to a jury, look, you cannot draw an adverse inference from the failure of an accused to testify, may be followed by a statement like, the accused in this case has an onus of some type, such as an affirmative defense where they need to prove on a balance of probability some (coughs) particular fact, like uh, mental disorder or automatism. (laughs) Certainly.
7: You've given us specific examples of where it would probably be inappropriate and probably the defense wouldn't want it, but but let's take the basic case. Let's, okay. let's stay away from these reverse onuses and so on. Yes. You say still it should not be mandatory. No. Uh, I, I At state, the request of the defense.
16: Well, the court, this court may want to give a decision to suggest that there's a presumption that it should be given, and given a certain set of circumstances, maybe it should not but I'm not suggesting that it should be mandatory or not mandatory in any particular case. Seeing that we're really just starting this, I think it might be dangerous to say anything definitive. Right? I, I think that's the bottom line. If we say something today to say, look, in every charge this must be given, or in every case where an accused doesn't testify, it must be given. In any case where accused doesn't testify and there are no other reasons for not giving it, then it must be given. I don't know how helpful that might be, uh, but for the exceptions you can give it but for the regular cases you can give it, but for the exceptions. There's no benefit to that. I think the court's statement in the judgment should be that the decision whether or not to give a no adverse inference charge is a, one that would be up to the trial judge to determine whether or not at a particular point in time it should be given.
7: That may be true, but, but surely we're supposed to give some guidance to trial judges as to when. Do we just throw it out there and say, look, you just decide, and then we'll have a whole raft of other appeals coming up here?
16: absolutely correct. But I think we suggest some examples of where it might be inappropriate. And we're talking about adverse inference, and we're talking about uh, maybe uh, situations where there is uh, no issue regarding whether or not the accused should have testified. I've suggested cases where the facts have been fully developed by everybody and there's nothing left for the accused to say. I've suggested cases where there's an objective fault element where what the accused's intention was may not matter. I've suggested cases where causation might be the only issue, so the accused's failure to testify may not be an issue. I guess, I guess in, in looking at it, you might say, in all cases, unless pointing out the fact that the accused did not testify might result in some prejudice to the accused. Maybe that's another one. You might wanna, that, that might be a solution to your, to your question there, Justice dig. However, no matter how we look at this, um, I think that the, uh, if this court decides not to deal with uh, or not to address Noble or overturn Noble, then the instruction that uh, is being suggested in the Adverse Inference Charge has, has different forms it could take. I've pointed out in our factum uh, two or three different suggestions that are there. Uh, even reading it yesterday, I would have tinkled with but of course all writers do. Um, so... Saying exactly what the form would be, I would not suggest it, but I think in the circumstance that it should not be a mandatory one, and I think that the interpretation of 4.6 that uh, the Attorney General is advocating, should this Court determine that it is appropriate to do so, uh, should be one that should be upheld by this Court. Unless there's any questions?
14: Can, can you help me briefly with sure. the, um, the situation of the testifying co-accused?
16: Well, the testifying co-accused would certainly be one of those situations where it might be more likely to be presented than not.
14: No. what should the charge say about the failure of one to testify on the evaluation of the evidence of one who did?
16: Well, I'm recommending the model in Crawford in terms of trying to balance the distinction between the right of one co-accused to suggest that another co-accused is guilty by their failure to present evidence. It might... That, that issue isn't actually before, as far as I can tell, that uh, the real complaint here might actually be that Mr. Salty shouldn't be able to say what he said, right? That issue's not being addressed or in, in terms of the arguments presented by counsel today, but that might actually resolve the issue about what the church should say about the adverse inference. I might be going a little far afield to it, but that's really what the issue is, what, you know, and uh, uh, not very helpful, you're welcome. <laughs>
1: Well, on that note, thank, thank you. you very much, <laughs> <too. laughs>
15: Madam.
0: Madam Chief Justice, Justices, the Attorney General of Quebec is intervening to support the constitutionality of 4-6 of the Canada Evidence Act that forbids the trial judge to comment on the failure to testify. In jurisprudence there is ambiguity when it comes to the nature of comments that are forbidden in this uh, section. According to certain decisions This would forbid the trial judge to instruct the jury when it comes to applicable rights when a witness fails to testify. Consequently, this uh, trial will allow us to clarify what is stated in 4.6. The Attorney Attorney General of Quebec believes that this section does not deny the trial judge the power of properly instructing juries. Trial judges can instruct juries adequately when it comes to the failure to testify. Our argument is based on two elements. First of all, when the trial judge charges the jury, the trial judge has to explain all of the pertinent information, and this includes the right to silence during a trial. Given the contextual interpretation of 4.6 of the Canada Evidence Act, we believe that the trial judge's power to instruct a jury when it comes to explaining a witness's right to silence does not go against anything else. It's also important to remember the context of 4.6. The trial judge must have the power to instruct the jury adequately. This is an essential element. In daily, it is established that the trial judge, in its jury charge, has to explain the applicable rules. The trial judge, at this point, will explain the questions of law that are relevant. In the charge, the charge, rather, is essential in order to make sure that the jury can fulfill its function and allow the jury to be adequately informed as to whether evidence is is relevant or not. In Corbett, which you will find at tab one of our condensed book. Justice Dixon says on page 194, there are many cases where a jury is allowed to hear and use evidence related to one issue and not to another issue. In this case, one has to provide the jury with clear instructions indicating what is permissible use and what is not. Given this, we believe that failure to testify should not be treated any differently. Like in NOBAL, trial judges cannot draw negative conclusions in a failure to testify except when it's related to an alibi. In order to adequately charge the jury, trial ju- judges are also allowed to instruct juries about the witnesses' uh, right to keep hold silence during the trial. In Turcot, Justice Abella mentioned in paragraph 58 that when proof related to silence is uh, admissible, it is necessary to inform the jury about the limited probative value of silence and the danger of founding an, a decision on this evidence. The Attorney General of Quebec believes that in the, 4.6 the fact that one cannot comment doesn't uh, preclude any rights. If you will, allow me a question. We've discussed uh, the issue of deduction and inference at length. I'd like to see if we can infer something from your document. In paragraph 20, page 16, so paragraph 48, you say it's essential that a jury be informed of uh, the c- that a jury should be informed whether abs- the failure to witness, to testify, can be used or not. Do you think this is obligatory? No, it's not mandatory because we believe that a trial judge should he give this uh, charge or not will not lead to a significant effect. In that case, an appeal court would have to study the charge to the jury. Excuse me, but that means that failing to give this type of instruction will lead to something, but my question is more related to the principle. And you're saying it's essential Yes, it's true that in uh, my document it says it is essential that the jury be informed, but the Attorney General of Quebec believes that even though it is essential to instruct the jury, when it is not done, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily fatal. That means that it's not necessarily mandatory for the trial judge to give this instruction. Thank you. Merci. The Attorney General Quebec believes that what is in 4.6 does not deny the power of a trial judge to provide adequate information on failure to testify. We can also conclude from McConnell that 4.6 can protect an accused who does not wish to testify and can benefit from his or her silence and not inculpate him or herself. The Attorney General of Quebec thinks we should avoid confusing commenting with instructions to to juries. We don't believe that instructions to juries can actually be assimilated with instructions related to the charge, the person charged but let me give a few details. As you just mentioned, in certain contexts, trial judges would be allowed to decide, depending on the circumstances, whether it is appropriate to instruct the jury in this case. If uh, a trial judge decides not to instruct the jury on the silence during trial, this be- we believe that this will not lead necessarily to a-, a wrong. It's important to remember that trial judges do have a discretionary power to adapt Instructions so that they reflect the case at hand. Consequently, given that the trial judge does have discretionary power to instruct the jury on uh, the witness's failure to testify, we believe that 4.6 is constitutionally valid. 4.6 does not deny this uh, power of the trial judges. And, in fact, the... The fact that judges cannot comment on uh, trial silence serves to protect the rights of the accused. When an accused does not testify or does not uh, defend his or her alibi, the trial judge could instruct the jury on conclusions to be drawn from the silence. When an accused decides not to testify, the trial judge could also instruct the jury on the object of trial silence. In other words, that failure to testify to support the witness's alibi could be construed in a certain manner. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Justices, <coughs> for the opportunity to reply. I um, My friend, Ms. Wilkham, makes much of the things that were said to the jury in this case, such as, for example, that the jury wasn't to consider whatever wasn't evidence. That's the kind of charge, indeed, everything that was said to the jury in this case is what juries are routinely told. I call it boilerplate because you see it in every jury charge. Yet we understand that juries do take into account things like the appearance of the accused. The accused has to be seen by the jury. The jury has to be able to see the accused because it's understood that that's the sort of thing that juries take into account. The failure of the accused to testify is going to be taken into account by them regardless of what they're told about what is evidence or is not evidence. Why do you you call this – I
7: I don't – I've never really liked this term boilerplate. It may be boilerplate to you and I. This is a jury. It's not boilerplate to them. They're listening carefully. They're listening to the instructions of the judge. The judge tells them what evidence is and what it isn't. The judge tells them how the Crown can prove its case and how it can't be. I don't call that boilerplate with respect. I call that basics and essentials for the jury and they're listening carefully to it.
2: I don't use the term boilerplate pejoratively, but I use it in order to make this point. When you look at cases like Crawford and Suzak and most particularly Chambers, it's well understood that the basics are not sufficient. In Chambers, the court said it's not enough just to tell the jury that the accused has the right to silence. It's not enough to tell them about the presumption of innocence. It's not enough to tell them about all those things that are basics. They need to be told about the prohibited use of that silence, and this is no different. Likewise, in Crawford and Suzak, there's the, 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 those cases went back, to tr- went back for trial because the, the, uh, the, the basics were held not to be sufficient, And this case is no different. Um, My friend says that uh, she seems to be pushing some sort of softer inference. I hear her almost saying that the adverse inference, which is what this case is about, is indeed prohibited. And um, Justice Karakatsanis said, well, you know, can you tell me about a case where it would be required? And my friend said, well, yes, I suppose it would be required if counsel for the co-accused went particularly far. Well, I ask you rhetorically, how much further could counsel for a co-accused go than did counsel for the co-accused in this case? He essentially told the jury, my client's innocent because he testified, Prokofiu's guilty because he didn't. You can't go much further than that. my friend suggests that juries don't think the prohibited way, i.e., they don't take the silence of the accused and consider it as pushing the evidence past the, uh, past the goal line. Well, with respect, I, I don't think she's in a position to say that, and indeed, commentary and the jurisprudence um, says quite clearly that that is indeed what they do. Um, Justice Cromwell mentioned the problem of the co-accused and how, uh, what exactly, is relevant to the co-accused who does testify from the failure of the uh, other co-accused to testify, and it is indeed a good question. Um, I, the same might have been asked rhetorically with respect to Suzak and with respect to Crawford, where there are these balancing rights. And I agree with my colleague who said that's not really before the court. Um, it may well be that there is no logical inference to be drawn in favour of the testifying co-accused. But I'm here to to Uh, say to this Court, it's not his interests that matter here, it's the interest of the non-testifying accused that need to be protected in any event. Um, Let me speak to um, some of the things that Mr. Bloom said with respect to the 686 issue. He points to two sets of documents. The first document, which is the invoice at tab uh, 30, is merely an invoice that would be sent in the normal course from one innocent party in this set of transactions to another. And indeed, it is an invoice sent to an innocent party. There is nothing about the invoice uh, on its face that suggests it's a, that the person who sent it or indeed the person who received it is a knowing fraudster. It's the sort of invoice that would have naturally been created in this course of events which, as my friend Ms. Grant said, included innocent individuals. The other document that is being referred to by my friend Mr. Bloom, uh, the nearest consulting document, refers to seventeen or $18,000. Uh, there's no evidence that that's a lot of money in this business. Indeed, I suggest it's not. Um, he, he said said says there was st- no heavy
6: equipment. Yes. Right, I'm sorry. That's exactly the point I was going to make.
2: He said he there was says, no
6: heavy equipment.
2: But, but even though there was no heavy equipment, we know there were innocent parties in this, in this set of transactions. The absence of heavy equipment proves that the scheme as a whole was put in place in order to defraud the government to the benefit of certain parties to the scheme, but The fact that there wasn't heavy equipment doesn't mean that the innocent dupes weren't doing real work and invoicing for their time, and this document doesn't in any way suggest that Mr. Prokofew was a member of that group as opposed to a member of the innocent group. It's an invoice on his company's name, done done on paper, not for cash, quite different from the evidence that's in question here, that is to say the... uh, the hearsay evidence which ought not to be admitted. Uh, Unless you have any questions, Justices, that is my reply and I thank you for your time.
1: Thank you all. The Court will reserve its decision on this case and the Court will return at 2 o'clock to hear the next case.